welcome to Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. We have a weekly show that's released every Friday, and this is episode 50. On Horror Movie Podcast, you'll hear in-depth horror movie reviews, especially for new releases, with ratings and recommendations to help you decide whether you should buy, rent, or avoid these movies. And I am your host, Jay of the Dead, podcasting from Salt Lake City, and my co-hosts tonight are... Dave, Dr. Shock Becker, from just outside Philadelphia, PA. Wolfman Josh. How's it going, Jay? I'm super pumped. I'm glad you asked, because I am very excited about the content in this episode. And I just want to say congratulations, you guys. 50 episodes. Can you believe we're at episode 50? I felt like no. we did 50 just about the Friday the 13th movie. So. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, really. <laughs> I know. I mean, for me, this is really a, a huge... Well, I mean, it's only 50 shows, I realize. But the thing is, I dropped off of the weekly horror movie podcast after episode 14. And then I disappeared from the face of the earth after episode 10 of Horror Metropolis. And here we are, episode 50. So it's about Not time to, to head for the hills? Yeah, I'll, I'll yeah, talk right. to you guys later. <laughs> <laughs> no, forget that. I'm dead serious about horror movies. Now, hey, you guys, I got a little anecdote for you real quick. You know how people always tell annoying stories about their kids that nobody else thinks is cute? <laughs> okay, here goes. Uh, are, are you preparing us for an annoying it? Yes, here goes. So okay. yesterday morning, I taught my seven-year-old son how to log on to my laptop and into Netflix. He's only seven. And then when he was on Netflix for like literally like a great idea. for five seconds, he was bored with it. And he looked at me and I, no lie, I quote, he said, hey, dad, now how do I log on to the deep web? <laughs> 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 the deep web. Yeah. So anyway, how does he even know what that is? He heard me talk about it on the donut show, of course. <laughs> so anyways, so there was somebody listening to the donut show. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. I like that. Boy, we are wound up tonight. Was there some item we had to talk about real quick before we jump in? I had something I was going to throw out there real quick. It's a bit of a, a rant, I guess, to uh, one of our longtime listeners, Juan, who uh, had the audacity, although it was, I guess, valid questions brought up about uh, Jay's rating system. <laughs> I just wanted to see if uh, wanted to see if if he was proud of himself. Now, uh, Juan, you have subjected this community to a series of statistical charts, <laughs> and I don't know if there's any coming back from that. <laughs> That's so funny. I love you guys. I really do, and I love Juan. I thought that was awesome. I actually had a really good time doing that. Don't feel bad. He loves talking about his rating system. <laughs> exactly. I do love it and because I'm actually quite proud of it, as you can probably tell. I can and, and I'll tell you what. And, and honestly, Jay, you did a very good job presenting it. You know, it was very well written. It was very well presented. <laughs> you really did break it down perfectly. I mean, I, I don't know how you could have done it any better than that. As a matter of fact, I would give you a 5.5 out of 10 for that. <laughs> well, And, and I would recommend decent. it as a, as a low priority read. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably that's about where it is that's probably what i would give it to because it's it's kind of boring to be honest no no no. it's 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 flawless it's flawless it's a 5.10 i'll tell you what though I, I gotta admit though i do have a different rating system for presentations with two or more graphs oh, so but trust me 5.5 is strong it's that really good. good you have to know dave it's good for him yeah that yes was absolutely that was amazing <laughs> Touche, my friends. Touche. That was very good. 
Well, I commend this community, and I'm very impressed with everybody who took the time to read that, and especially to leave comments. And so that was really nice. Otherwise, I noticed a new listener in there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, aren't you drawing from those who commented for a DVD winner? Yes, I am, in fact. So by way of appreciating our listeners for doing this, everyone who left a comment, except for Wolfman Josh. What? <laughs> I read the whole thing. <laughs> you deserve something for that. That is true. <laughs> there should be some kind of consolation prize. So yeah, we're going to do a drawing and one person, one lucky person who commented will receive a DVD of the French slasher flick inside. And let's do that drawing now. Okay, so if everybody who read through my rating system and commented, pick out... The winner is Michael Allen Fitzgerald. Congratulations. Email me at horrormoviepodcast at gmail.com and we'll get your prize sent out to you. And speaking of prizes, I just want to let everybody know of our winners of our various Friday the 13th franchise paraphernalia. We are still good for those. We've sent some of those out and some of them we have not sent out yet, but I promise you, you will get those prizes. We are good for it. This sounds like a dumb excuse, but I've had trouble getting to the post office, but I have them in my possession and they are yours. Well, we're going to kick off episode 50 here with our headliner review. Um, we got a lot of important and wonderful things that we're covering in this episode. We've got some in-depth pumpkin head one and two coverage coming at you. Doc's going to do a great little mini review of a film called Gothic. But before we get to any of that, we got a voicemail from Michael. He called in, and he must have been outside at the time because it sounds like the wind is blowing into the phone, and so it's really tough to hear what he's saying. So I hope Michael doesn't mind, but I took the liberty of transcribing his voicemail, and I'll read it for you here. Michael said, Hey, Horror Movie Podcast, it's Michael. I'm really hoping you guys can review the movie that just came out called It Follows. I watched it. It is a great movie. Not a really good ending, in my opinion, but I highly recommend it. The cinematography is awesome. It was epic. I love how your eyes are moving around the screen during the entire film, and it's just a great movie. I'd really like to hear your opinions on it, especially Wolfman Josh and Dr. Shock, and you also, Jay of the Dead. I like your opinions, and I like how you always get outnumbered, but somehow, someway, you always get the last word. Anyway, thanks for the great work, and have a great day, guys. And so, Michael, thank you for your voicemail. This is for you, buddy. You're not going to believe me, and I need you to remember what I'm saying. This thing, it's going to follow you. Somebody gave it to me, and I passed it to you. Wherever you are, it's somewhere walking straight for you. All you can do is pass it along to someone else. The premise of this film is very simple. Um, a young lady named Jay, oddly enough, <laughs> played by Micah Monroe. Uh, so both her character and her in real life have boyish sounding names, but she's a, a beautiful young lady. Um, she is involved in a sexual encounter with a, a boy that she knows but doesn't know too well and immediately following that experience it's revealed to her that she is being pursued and the title of the film it follows is basically 
as in depth as the as the threat goes or the plot even goes in this film, she is being followed and the it is following her and she has to figure out what to do about that and how she can navigate survival in this situation. And it's surprisingly for how simple that is. And it is a great premise. Um, and it does harken back to like, a, it's a little bit uh, night of the living dead and a little bit Halloween. You know, these, these feel like, Slow moving zombies meet Michael Myers to me, but they are terrifying. This threat is terrifying. And as simple as that premise is, this movie is insanely effective and extremely tense. The tension here <laughs> is so palatable, it could be cut with a veritable knife. <laughs> That's right. Yes, yes. So you were pleased then, Wolfman Josh? Recently, when you and I reviewed Blue Ruin, on movie podcast weekly i i told you that i was jumping up and down in my living room when i when i watched the movie yeah i was bouncing around in my seat in the theater while i was watching this movie (laughs) i was so excited that i was seeing it i couldn't contain myself yeah i mean how are we gonna review this for the listeners without overselling it because we both loved it and it's extremely effective I think there are actually a lot of things to tell people about why they might not like it. Yeah, that's so true. I, I mean, that will help. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's true. I mean, well, one thing is I, I would say that, do you remember how all of 2014, like, well, a lot of 2014, I just kept hearing about the Babadook, Babadook, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, I even decided I wasn't going to like that film that much. And then, and then <laughs> I saw it and loved it. It ended up being my number one film. And then many people have told me that I oversold it. Anyway, <laughs> here we are. It follows, and I hope this doesn't hurt it, but this is the the Babadook of this year so far for me. It absolutely is. And we talked about Spring on the last episode of this podcast, and mm-hmm. I both of these films have been talked about as the Babadook of this year. But, you know, as we mentioned last week, that film was not quite as effective as a horror movie. This film is insanely effective. I don't want to repeat myself, but it, there was so much suspense in this movie. I was on the edge of my seat the entire time, and it really is as simple as kind of a slow-moving zombie for the most part. But yeah. it is so unrelenting that it's just – and the tension is palatable. And by the way, it's one – slow moving zombie <laughs> and it's not a yeah. zombie but i'm just saying it's well, one it being. has that it has that nice mix of michael myers because yeah. a zombie you could move out of the way and it would walk right by you the great thing about this monster is it's always coming directly at you no matter where you are it will follow you no matter where you go and of course there are ways you can get it to follow someone else and those become you know, major plot points and major, um, stru- you know, moral struggles for the characters in the film. And it, it, it's those characters and those types of moral quandaries that I think elevate the film beyond just a simple kind of horror film. I think this is a, has real substance to it as well. Yes. But it's also just a blast. <laughs> it and again, is a blast. it's shocking that it's so much fun for how little there is to it. Yeah, I totally agree, and I love that you said that because it is a very simple concept, and one thing I love about it is how it gets back to the basics, because I think what we have here is a true horror concept. 
And for people yeah. who listen to Movie Podcast Weekly, I did a very small review of it over there, Josh, because I didn't want to spoil everything for this review. So um, I'm sorry about if there's a little bit of repetition here, but I want to make sure. Don't worry, we're going to go in depth on this baby without ruining it for everybody. So we're not going to spoil it or anything. But I've been complaining and lamenting that horror movies have relegated. They've become where, okay, we're going to try to scare the audience. Let's do a million jump scares with a cat. Or let's just show some horrific gore, like as explicitly as possible. That'll scare them. But no, no, this gets into actual terror. That that whole thing as you feel when you're a kid. If you've yes. ever played tag with other kids and somebody is it and they're coming to get you (laughs) that fear that you feel when they're going to quote unquote get you you have that fear while watching this film this is a very visceral experience watching this movie and it starts out a little slow i like that about it um i didn't know if it would ever ramp up and i was not disappointed because it, it did indeed ramp up quite a bit correct you know, I think there will be people who are frustrated by the ending. I think it's great because I I think, and it's it's stuck with me. This is a movie that I thought about for like four days after I saw it. And I'm now that we're talking about it, I'm going to think about it for another four days. I'm still thinking about it, honestly. And I'll tell you something about that. When Okay, I don't get scared by horror movies. Rarely ever, really. But when I walked out of the theater, Josh, I'm not kidding. I was waiting. The rest of my family went to see Cinderella and I saw It Follows. And, and I was waiting on them and I was sitting in the lobby and I could hear people walking up behind me and I was freaked out by that. I wanted to turn around and kind of like <laughs> beware of them. Yeah. It really affected me that way. And then the other night I woke up in the middle of the night, like 3 a.m. And I immediately started thinking about this movie. And honestly, I'm like, oh, I started getting myself worked up and scared. And I'm like, if I don't stop thinking about this movie, I'm not going to be able to go back to sleep. <laughs> it really <laughs> happened. Yeah, so. and it has that kind of Nightmare on Elm Street quality of, you know, you don't dare to sleep or rest or stop due to the nature of the monster. And, I, you know, I felt the same way. I, I was in a theater that was not empty, but, you know, there weren't a lot of people there. Um, most of them were in front of me or to the side of me, but there was one guy sitting right behind me. And I hated that that was the case. Like I was so nervous about him sitting right behind me. I could hear him move and breathe occasionally during some of the quiet moments. And I just, there were several times I just wanted to jump up out of my chair and just move seats. See, that's just another reason why I always sit in the back row, top, back, center. (laughs) Always. I can't handle that. Yeah, but what if they all turned around and came at you? You'd be stuck up there. That's right. Well, I mean, actually, two of my criticisms of this film have to do with the, the two points you just brought up. Number one, with a monster that is always pursuing you, Always coming to get you. And by the way, it comes just at a walking pace. But it, no matter where you are, it's making a beeline for where you are. Yeah, but as you mentioned, as we talked about with zombie movies, it's just that unrelenting march of death. It's coming for you. Yeah, no matter what. what. And the thing is, they touch on this a little bit, but I was so surprised that they didn't capitalize more on the fact that since this thing is always coming at you, how are you ever going to get a restful sleep and know that you can sleep through the night? Oh, I thought they did it well. I thought they did that really well. There's a character, 
Um, the the, her, the first character she encounters, the boy that she slept with, right? They go looking for him, and when they find his house, there are a few elements at his house that really speak to this theme that you're talking That's about. That's true. Um, the boy that she encounters after that, he also has a, a late night situation happen. <laughs> yes. And there are a lot of times in this movie where they are just getting as far away as they can from the threat. Mm-hmm. And it's for that reason. They just need a minute to breathe, you know, and that's the only way they can do it is just to run. But yes, everything you said is true, but all of that is undercut by one scene where she's sleeping on her car, on the outside of it. And it's like, why are you on the outside of your car? <laughs> like, that really bugged me. But that's little, I guess. I will reveal that I had to use the restroom at one point during this movie. And I tried to not, but I was going to pee my pants. So um, <laughs> I had to run. But I, I may have missed the sleeping on the car. <laughs> okay, yeah. There is a time where she could have slept inside the car. And relative safety, who knows. But she sleeps out on the hood for some inexplicable reason. And that's kind of weird. Okay, let's talk about the opening of this film. I forget what my other complaint was, but we'll get to it here in a minute. When this film opens, I love that it opens in a suburb, basically, because that's kind of a, a popular horror concept that they've capitalized on in the last 30 years or so. Because yes. life in the suburbs always is presumably rosy, it seems to be, on the outside. but something horrifying is occurring underneath by the way a little side note josh the most effective illustration of this i've ever seen is just a straight up drama movie it's not even horror and it's sam mendez's revolutionary road interesting yeah if if people like that theme of something bad is wrong on the inside man that's a disturbing movie that way anyway that was just a i mean that's to me that's what i like about david lynch it's always this dark underbelly of what seems to be white picket fence america Mm -hmm. yeah that's good so do you think it's so this character comes running out of the house that's the curtain raiser oh man that's a great little scene yeah it is and and she runs in a giant circle and back into the house again now why do you (laughs) think she does that. I think that's significant. I know exactly why she does it, but I love that you don't realize it until later in the film. You know, it's the way this monster works. Right. And I think that's great. That um, I almost hope this isn't a spoiler for people because I think it's such a neat little moment to start off the movie. Mm-hmm. It's so disorienting. Is that, did I say that word correctly? Yeah, you did. Yeah, you disorienting. Did. Yeah, well, it's the opening scene. I don't, I wouldn't consider it a spoiler personally, but. Well, you don't have to talk about it further if you feel like it'll. Well, I mean, you can you can if you like. I just think it's neat that you really don't know what's going on. So yeah, that's kind of that's kind of fun. Yeah, they drop you right in the middle of it. I so, don't think there's a lot of question about it. Do you think there is? Do you think it's up for debate? What about what's happening there exactly? Yeah, like why she's doing what she's doing. No, no, I, I I'm totally with you. I just think it's just. I think it's an interesting concept, and I wondered, you know, as I thought about it, I'm like, okay, I I realize why she's doing this, which is really cool, as you said, but it's like, I wonder if there is some kind of underlying thematic message to this, but I I don't know. This movie is kind of difficult in one way. Well, there are a lot of of different possible interpretations uh, for the theme of the film. Yeah. Um, 
and and maybe they're all correct or maybe none of them are correct uh, right but but I think there are two for me that seem like they're right on the forefront okay are you and, able to talk about them I mean I, yeah I'm, I'm willing to talk about this as much as you want do we want to do a minor spoiler alert or do we want to just well, we're not going to give away any major plot points, but I think that we'll do this the usual horror movie podcast style where we talk about themes. Yeah, and in order to talk about the themes, we will have to talk a little bit more about some details. But yeah, again, I will avoid all major twists and turns. Exactly. And, you know, because we'll talk about the nature of the monster as well, because when you have such an interesting monster like this, I think in this type of review, I think it's it'd be really cool for us to address that. And I do want people to listen to our review. <laughs> right. But I'd almost rather they just turn this off and go watch the movie because it's so good. Yeah. And then come back to the review and join us in the comments. But but go ahead. What do you think about the themes? So, I mean, I think to me the first and more, most obvious maybe thematic thing that's happening here is that it's about teenage sexuality Mm-hmm. and sexually transmitted disease and it's an interesting modern take on what has become a horror movie cliche as we talked about 80 slashers and friday the 13th series so much recently yes you know we know if you have sex you die and this movie takes that very literally <laughs> and um i think that's a very clear to me theme of the film but i think maybe it's not what the filmmakers are going for yeah I, I think to me, the bigger theme seems to be about trauma related to sex, whether it's yes. uh, a, a abuse or same, you know, whether and whether that's abuse like a, for a child abuse or if it's just about um, the painful things we go through, you know, learning about our sexuality and other people and navigating our way through the world as as uh, youths into adulthood. Mm-hmm. And, um, I guess there's something that's kind of spoilerish to me that gives that away. There are two things toward the end of the film that give that away to me. Uh, but definitely a theme to this film is that whatever it is that's bad about these sexual encounters, one way to get rid of it is to pass it on to someone else, which to me speaks to kind of a cycle of abuse kind of a idea. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I- I didn't think as much about abuse, but I think that is totally there. My thematic outtakes from this were the same kind of thing where like with sex, for example, once you start, you can't stop. Like, you know, once you become (laughs) a sexual being, then you always want to pass it on. And And then that desire will consume you or eat you alive if you do not continually return to the well, so to speak. And I think there's something to do with how you're going about your sexual activity. Again, kind of getting to the abusing, not that it necessarily has to be abuse. Again, it could just be the way in which you approach your sexual life seems to matter to me in this movie. Oh yeah, I totally agree. In fact, I think that um, one reading of this is it has to do with a loss of innocence and regret, maybe the regret that hangs with you or follows you, if you will, and haunts you if you maybe made that decision to, you know, have sex with someone and then you regret it or you lost yeah. your innocence maybe prematurely sooner than you would have liked in retrospect. And also wh- whether that is meaning, whether these encounters are meaningful to you or not is seems to be a major point. 
the film. Oh, yeah. I, I totally agree with that as well. Whether it's just casual sex or a meaningful kind of experience. And the repercussions of it, in fact, because as we know, if you have sex with the wrong person, you can potentially regret it for life because <laughs> the repercussions can haunt you, whether it's like, you know, bringing other people into the world. Yeah, unwanted pregnancies. Or, you know, some kind of terrible disease, as you've mentioned. Yeah, I'll, I'll stay away from the. There's a kill later in the movie that's really obvious on this. I'll stay away from that because that's kind of a... But it addresses what you said, but I sensed that you weren't going to go there, so I won't go there either. Uh, which one are you, are you talking about? The one across the street? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that that has something to do with it. I think something that happens at the swimming pool, to me, leads me to believe that. Yeah. There are a few things, actually. Yeah, that's really cool. And how about this? I mean, it's so it's undeniable that, you know, sexuality is some kind of a a prominent theme in this because, like, you know, they have little satellite stories about, you know, mishaps with porno mags, for example. Or yes. sometimes the, the form that the monster takes when it attacks, it is in, it is nude. And yeah. it's naked. And it's like, well, that's interesting. And, and it's, sometimes it's extremely damaged. Like, it's been through a really intense experience. It might be bleeding or cut or, and it might be, uh, peeing its pants for instance like yeah. there's trauma for a lot of these yeah. incarnations of the monster and oh man there's so much here so if you had to boil all this down we identified several different thematic elements there i think that the filmmakers are saying that um sex is complicated and potentially harmful that that it is such a powerful and complicated part of the human experience, like human sexuality can be um, either, it could be destroying force. It could be confusing. It can be, um, yeah, just, I think just that it's complicated. I mean, you talk about, you know, there's a scene that's in the trailer um, where she's kind of laying in the backseat of this car talking about when she was a kid, this is what she imagined it would be like when she grew up. Yeah. And that's very telling that she's talking about that. I don't think it's just random. She's saying, you know, I thought I would, I just imagined that I'd be with a boy and we'd look at each other and we'd be on this car drive. And, and she it was such an innocent um, telling or, or, or image of what being an adult or a, a teen would be like. And especially innocent in contrast to what's just taken place and to the horrors that are immediately about to befall her. I think that's very poignant. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, th this is the writing. This is very smart, this film. And I'll, I'll just give an example. This is not a spoiler at all. But like at one point, they're seeing a movie at the theater. And the film that's playing is called Charade. And that is an actual Stanley Donen film from 1963. I love that movie. And starts Cary Grant and Audrey Hepburn. And the neat thing is the plot of Charade actually mirrors It Follows a little bit because it's about a woman who's pursued by several men. Hmm. And um, she, doesn't, she, do, she doesn't know who she can trust. And, that's very funny. And that's super cool. And the other thing I like about that theater, the theater has a small town feel to it. They even have an organist playing there yeah. for the prelude, which is very cool. But I love how... This theater has horror happening in the daylight, so to speak, where, you know, she's sitting in this theater with this boy and they're playing this game 
and the first sense that you get that something is amiss is really creepy. I started getting chills right then, Josh. And and it's yeah. daytime in the th- I mean it, in the theater they're in a crowded room full of people and it's like the other cool thing about that is I happened it's very meta and self referential because at that point I was sitting in a theater myself yeah of course getting yeah. chills and that was freaky and at the beginning of that date I also like it's very poignant because as they start to play this game she asks him the question and I know what his answer is gonna be. And when he gives his answer, and I'm sorry, this is vague for the listeners, but when he gives his answer, we learn about his concerns and it makes it very, oh man, it's kind of heartbreaking knowing yeah. later what this this character is going through. Yeah. And again, it speaks to kind of what she was speaking to in the car. Just that idea of youthful innocence and Yeah. And you think it's going to be one way. Yeah. And it's not. Yeah. That's powerful, Josh. So, do you want to talk about the monster a little bit, the nature of this monster? Just Go ahead, go ahead and lead the, that conversation. Okay, okay. Let's talk about the qualities of this monster, because I think all horror fans know and realize that, really, it is the monster that makes the horror movie, to me at least. And I think this has a lot of neat blends in it. You've got a touch of body snatcherism in here, a little bit. A very small touch of it. A touch of the invisible man, a little bit. And then you got slow zombies, as you've mentioned. And then you got that whole betrayal. Because this monster can appear as anybody. I mean, it's not like Pumpkinhead coming at you. It, it appears as a human being. And it can yeah. appear as someone you know or someone you don't know. And so you've got that theme, you know, with zombie movies where you can be betrayed by a loved one. And I know that's a theme that really gets to you, huh, Josh? Absolutely. That's one of my favorite things. And and one of the most, I tell you, the most prominent parallel, and I love this movie, and this doesn't hurt the movie for me. It actually strengthens it. But I could not stop thinking about the Terminator, the first one, because um, in the Terminator, Arnold Schwarzenegger's character is always, always coming after her, no matter what. He wants to kill Sarah Connor, and he is so determined and laser focused and that's exactly how this monster is it's almost actually more like t2 in that way of of being able to change what it looks like and use that against you that's really a great point jake because again i was i was kind of equating it to michael myers but i think yeah it's almost like uh it's most almost like robert patrick and and, yeah that's i love it you said t2 and you don't know you don't know if it can be stopped or hurt or killed or injured or anything. You don't know what you can do. You just know you got to get the hell out of the way. Right? I mean, it, <laughs> it's so fun. It's so fun to have a new monster and they don't know the rules and they don't know what it's called and they don't know where it's from and they have to figure out how to evade it. And it's not like something like Tremors, which I think they do it really well as well. Um, where they can eventually kind of figure out by the way it's acting, what they can do. This is so supernatural it's almost, it almost seems impossible to stop this thing. Yeah. And it is supernatural because no matter where you go, it always knows where you are. It's like a compass and it just points in the direction and walks towards you to get you. Yeah. And we do, and I do love, they establish this and I think this is imperative for this movie to work. They establish that if the monster does catch you, it is very bad. 
you do not want this to catch you. Yeah. And they, they show us evidence of this. And I think that's also key. Do you love how the monster does not talk or communicate at all? It doesn't care. It doesn't matter. It just wants to get you. That's scary. I mean, really, it's it, you describing it made it so much more clear to me why I like this so much. It's body snatchers, Michael Myers, and zombies. Like, yeah. Yeah. All of my favorite. Th- this is a few of my favorite things. <laughs> in in a in a really artfully done and you know when you talk about the monster is the thing that matters I almost would suggest in this film like the monster's great and all the monster is great in this movie but I think the movie succeeds not necessarily because of the monster the movie succeeds because of the characters because of the 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 threat the unknown it, it, it succeeds almost more on not knowing that much about the monster and in fact when we learn more about the monster toward the end i feel like it becomes a little less powerful and interesting to me as we see them being able to affect the monster in a few different ways mm, that's interesting well yeah i i think that for me it wasn't about the rules of the monster that that took away from it it was a little bit about the execution of how that was done. I agree. And my favorite idea was that I thought they were going to try to trace this back when they, yes. to figure out where this started. And that would have been, that's the only like my note that I would have given to the screenwriter. I would have said like, that would have made a film a hundred times more interesting to me if they had gone on a detective mystery to track down the beginnings of this situation i would have loved that version of it more than kind of where the film ends up in kind of the last quarter Mm -hmm. but having said that i think they did what they wanted to do really well but i sense okay this was written and directed by david robert mitchell props to him and i sense that david robert mitchell was really determined not to try to explain away this monster too much. And and I get the sense, I mean, exposition is needed at times. And in the initial exposition dump, when we get a good bit of it about the monster right up front, you know, it's a, he still makes that scene kind of freaky and scary, which I think makes it work. Otherwise it's a lot of exposition, but I just think that the filmmaker was really trying to avoid having to explain away origins in this. Yeah, and that's fair enough. I just think, to me, I think that investigative process would have been fulfilling for me. Me too. Um, I, I think he's an interesting filmmaker. I, his first film I have also seen, it's called The Myth of the American Sleepover, and it's just, it's kind of like it follows without the horror element. When we reviewed Blue Ruin, both on Movie Podcast Weekly and Movie Streamcast, I've kind of talked about, I think Jeremy Saulnier, that director, took his horror background and took the best elements of that and made a movie, a non-horror film, that, and it made that non-horror film, that drama, extremely effective and more effective than most dramas of its kind would be because it had that tinge of horror to it. I almost feel like this is the reverse. I feel like, uh, you know, this director, David Robert Mitchell, took the heart and the humanity of the myth of the American sleepover and then brought horror elements into it and made this a more effective independent horror film than most are. Yeah. Uh, I think it has those characters, like... We've talked about all of, all of these Friday the 13th movies. <laughs> I do not care about 99% of the 
of the teenagers of, of, in those movies. Yeah. They're fodder. And I care about every single one of the teenagers in this movie, even the ones who barely speak. There are a couple that don't really say much. Yeah. And I'm still invested in them. I'm interested in them. They're great actors. They, they're believable. The setting feels real. They feel like real kids. Yes. yes. And I, and to me that excites me and it makes me actually pardon my French, give a damn about what's going to happen to them. Right. Right. I absolutely agree with you hundred percent. Yeah, that's very important. And I just think that sometimes we horror fans, we're so used to getting horror movies where they don't invest in the characters enough for us to care that I think we've become, I I don't know, dismissive about it. It's kind of permissible. Yeah. I mean, it's like, yeah. It's like an abusive relationship. You just (laughs) say, well, that's how it's going to (laughs) be. Yeah. And we need we'll learn to love it anyway that's right exactly so props to david robert mitchell for you know making us care but just a couple more things real quick on this monster um i love how you don't know what it is at all but you know it's malevolent and that it's ruthless and that it's determined yeah i love how you if you think about this you can never ever truly escape it permanently there is no escaping this monster i love that too yeah and i think that's or is there i think there's a reading of the film that they do escape the monster i think there's a reading of the film that they don't escape the monster hope that's not a spoiler i think there are three possible readings of the ending of this film for me and that's another thing i love about it wow that's interesting if that's a spoiler feel free to cut that out no i don't think it is at all i because that's a that what you just said there is a real mind wrestle. So for someone who hasn't seen the film, I mean, if you've seen the film, you got to think about that a lot, what you just said. So that's not a spoiler to me. There is a little quirk about this monster. Yeah. It breaks windows a lot. Yeah. Like it doesn't run. It doesn't have personality. It doesn't talk, but it does tend to break windows, which I think is awesome. <laughs> it's got to get where it's going. And I like that about it. Um, you know, one another element to this monster is that only the person being pursued can see it. Yes. We have, we have, that's something we haven't talked about, really. Otherwise, it's invisible. Yeah. And so I think the fact that it is having real world effects was exciting because it's like there's so many times and it's become such a cliche. People don't ever believe this person you know they don't believe that they think they're crazy and that still plays a role in it but i like the, the fact that it is having real world it's affecting <laughs> our world yes. and, the, and that person still has to wrestle with people believing her she still has to wrestle with like no look it just broke the window right know? right and that's exciting for me i don't know there's something about the way it was handled by the director i just thought it was great i totally agree and um, I'll tell you the the scariest part to me, and this is not a spoiler, but there is a there is an old lady walking across a field from, uh, distantly, very far away. Josh, that whole sequence scared me, like genuinely scared me. I was so I was really afraid of that. I and I really was. And this is an old lady, guys. It's not even like a freaky looking old lady. It looks like your grandma, right? But just determined and walking slowly toward you and it's really cool because they they put the camera right in front of her and she walks right toward the camera 
And it was to the point that I had to exclaim in the theater. Like, I had to laugh to break the tension because I was getting too freaked out at it coming at me <laughs> in the camera. Another neat thing they do with the camera, it, which is very impressive to me. I was like so... I thought it was so cool. Uh, we know that our protagonist is being pursued by this and we're always trying to watch around her because they have it coming up behind her quite a bit in fact i would go so far to say there are scenes where there are individuals approaching her and we don't know whether it's the monster or not you never really do and i think that there are lots of extra scenes kind of like in the first halloween there are extra scenes where if you're looking carefully in the corners, you can see beings coming at her. And I, yeah. I think that that was meant to be the monster. But there's this camera technique, Josh, where it's kind of up close in her face to the to the point that we can't see around her and what's going on around her because her body's blocking our perspective of the yeah. rest of the screen. And it's really unnerving. You're like, move. I got to I got to watch your back, you know. And yeah. Did yeah. you ha- did that happen for you? Yeah, there were lots of things like that. There's also the moment that you're talking about with the old woman where the camera does this 360 spin and it's slowly panning around the inside of of the school. And so there's a huge portion of that camera move where you can't see the direction the monster is. (laughs) And so you're just wondering, like, what's happening right now? What's happening right now? You know, and it's amazing. It's It's, It's really well shot. We haven't talked about that enough. It's beautifully shot film. Yes, it is. Cinematography is excellent. Yeah, there's a lot of artistry. I mean, this is an indie film, as you said. Do you know the budget on this by any chance? I don't. So with the cover art, for example, it reminds me so much of David Fincher's Zodiac. Look at that cover. It's so simple. It's just a car in the dark, and it's freaky, and it looks super professional, very slick. I even love the cover art to it. Yeah, and you know there was a great article that I've only discovered recently, but it was written last year, and I'll put it in the show notes here for people to check out. It's so awesome. It's a 2014 article. It says, the most influential filmmaker of the year, John Carpenter. And it talks about <laughs> how all of these young filmmakers that have horror films coming out this year, how they are all of them are drawing from John Carpenter. And not only horror films, but they talk about Blue Ruin, how Jeremy Saulnier was extremely influenced by John Carpenter. And you can see that for me in a lot of the lighting of this movie. It yeah. feels like Carpenter-esque lighting several times in the film. And I love, love that. In fact, It Follows uses the John Carpenter font in the opening titles. Yeah, <laughs> good catch. I didn't realize that, but you're exactly right. That's pretty cool. Okay, so here's something that I love about this. We, we learned this in the first exposition where he's explaining... It's kind of like a throwaway line, but he says it when he's warning her about the monster. He says, never be in a place with only one exit. And I wish that they would have capitalized on this more, like played with that more in the film. Because I really felt like when he said that, I really made a mental note as a person who relates, who thinks I'm the character in the movie. I would have been insane about that rule because there are so many times I'm like, what is she doing there? You can't get out of there very easily. What are you doing? They either needed to show her following that to the letter or show it going really bad for her when she didn't follow that rule or both. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's a major rule. And by the way, I think that's really an, a scary aspect to this because, yeah, if you think about, if you've ever played tag or chase or whatever and you're in a room and you're kind of cornered, man, that's very upsetting. Yeah, there's so, <laughs> there, by the way, there are so many great scares having to do with this monster being nearby. They do it wonderfully a couple of times in the film but even when it's far away it's scary the one of the best scenes is right the first time that we really get to see the monster um the guy that she has this encounter with is looking around it's dark he has a flashlight he's scanning the horizon looking in the dark in the trees and then he says oh i see it yeah that's it it's coming and it's so (laughs) scary and you don't even see it. That's the other thing. You don't even see it at that point. You're like, where? Where is it coming? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. To tell you the truth, I'm honestly getting scared right now. I while know. We're talking about this. I like, know. I don't want to be. I'm at my office at work. There's a big window. I can see out into the the street. There's like a street light and then just darkness and trees on yes. one side. And then on the other side, I have my back to like terrible feng shui. I have my back to this closed door. <laughs> And I am honestly scared right now. Well, I, I was going to, I've been trying to get you to go to a movie like with me in the past couple of days since we've seen this really bad because when I went, when I see you next, I wanted to just walk at you really intensely without saying anything <laughs> to see what you do. But, um, okay, let's, let's talk well, about by it. By the way, just, just very briefly, go since ahead. you said that, um, you know, I've heard that the the inspiration from the film came from when the director was young, and I'm paraphrasing this because it was a long time ago. It was like during Sundance that I read this story. But basically, the idea for this movie was based on an experience he had as a kid, where he was standing on the street and someone started walking to was walking toward him, and I believe it was a child, but he knew that it wasn't that person. What? And that was what he believed when he saw this person walking toward him. He said, I see that person, but I believe it's not that person. I'm not telling this very well, but that was kind of the idea that the person who's walking toward me is not the person that it appears to be. <laughs> I have chills. I have little goosebumps. <laughs> I'm so mad at you right now. <laughs> That's but hilarious. Yeah, maybe bad at David Robert Mitchell. <laughs> I'd love to hear that whole story. I'll, okay. I'll look for it. Okay. So here are a couple problems. I, I do have some problems with this film. And this is one that I know annoys you a lot when I have this problem. But it wasn't what the trailer promised you? No, no, no. I didn't watch the trailer. I went in blind to this. You didn't I, like the comedy that was in the movie? No, I, I'm more, I fear I, I, there are scenes in this movie that not only could be parodied, but will be parodied. Oh, brother. I hate that when that happens. When they leave it open to be made fun of, like blatantly, that's a problem. There's an aftermath kill scene. It's the first one we see near the opening of the film. And it's a little disturbing, but at the same time, it's like, um, am I watching Scary Movie 6 right now? Like, Because it's a little bizarre and almost funny. It wasn't my favorite part of the movie, but I, at the same time... I thought it was effective enough. I, you know, it was, it, it was, it was a little bit at the beginning. I thought, um, I hope this isn't what the movie's going to be like. And it really wasn't. So yeah. it was actually very different from that the rest of the time. Yeah. So listeners, when you see the first kill aftermath scene, not perfect, but hang in there. Okay. And then there's another damn 
hair pulling scene from an invisible being. I hate it when they do that. They did it in The Conjuring and it made me mad. And it happens here. We get hair pulling and it looks maybe, maybe stupid. This was, maybe this was these filmmakers making fun of the country. <laughs> they, heard, they heard your podcast. Yeah, I'm sure. But, but honestly, and this is a, a weightier matter, and that's a little pun there. I think that filmmakers often, and I'm not a filmmaker, so this isn't rude of me to say, but I think filmmakers often forget that CGI needs to have weight to it. Just because you can conjure things through computer-generated imagery, you need to relate that imagery to the physics of the real world. And so in the hair-pulling sequence, we have a, you know, somebody go flying, and and it happens so quickly and unnaturally. It's like, no, that's moving too fast. That doesn't look right. That bugs me. Yeah, yeah. I'm with you. Okay. Josh, well, this is one of my biggest things, and you've touched on this a little bit. Don't worry, no spoilers here. But um, the whole movie, what I got most excited about was like, how in the world, I kept asking myself, how are they going to end this movie? I was very intrigued to see how they would wrap this up. And I will say, I think the ending is fine. I think it works. It is haunting and all that stuff. But on the other hand, I do think it's a, a little bit of a cop-out, too. I disagree. Because, okay. again, I feel like there are three different readings for them. Yeah, I, I do. I agree with you in the sense that I, yeah, I wish they were going to track down, track this monster down to its be- beginnings and find out the rules and find out how to kill it. And that's just my personal type of preference. But, you know, accepting that this wasn't my movie. <laughs> right. I was very pleased with how they handled it because I think it's open to interpretation and I think there's ample evidence to support a couple, at least a couple of the different readings. Okay. Well, when we're when we're done recording, I want to hear your thoughts on that because I'm very intrigued by that. Here's another little complaint. There's one scene that starts to happen in a cornfield, and it's brilliant. I just wish they would have milked that more because she has like zero visibility in the midst of the corn. There's a showdown around a swimming pool or involving a swimming pool a little bit. And that's disappointing because after seeing Let the Right One In and its showdown scene at the swimming pool, I I think that they should have just scrapped that idea because (laughs) it can't even touch Let the Right One In, for example. Yeah. Not that it's related. I don't don't think it, yeah, I don't really feel like it. Reminds me of that. It reminds me more of the faculty in some ways. Okay. <laughs> or, um, and, or gremlins. And, and somehow carry, um, in some ways. But I, don't, I think it's a good plan that they have. I don't like the execution, like you said, of that scene. I don't, I don't like what happens because it, I, I would rather see their plan executed, even if it doesn't work at first. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Um, just because that's more fun and interesting visually to me. Right. Um, a couple of things we haven't talked about is that it takes place in Detroit, and I didn't know that for most of the movie. Right. And and so I think that's awesome that it takes place in Detroit, first of all. Yes. But secondly, um, I think it's interesting that they didn't choose to exploit Detroit um, as a location because obviously Detroit is in chaos and falling apart. And I think thematically you could have done some really interesting things. And visually with locations, you could have done some really interesting things in Detroit, and they really just – treat it as a normal place. And that's because I think that's where the filmmaker's from. And so he's kind of just setting it in places that feel familiar, familiar to him. Yeah. 
But I, I almost feel like that was a bit of a missed opportunity. And maybe that's cliche. If he, you know, coming from there, he would probably say, well, look, everybody does that with Detroit. I'm doing something different. That's fair enough. But I just think yeah. there's so much about Detroit that you could have really milked and made for it even made it even more atmospheric mm-hmm. than it already is. And this movie is just heavily atmospheric. Well, speaking to that, I mean, what time period was this set in? Because well, there you go. It's l- another amazing thing about it. It looks like a lot of it looks like the late seventies to me. But there's this girl. The character has this little the reader thing in her she hand. Has future technology that doesn't exist now. Yeah, yeah, and it looks like the little Kendo, but it's like in a makeup compact seashell thing where she's so reading cool. on this I love thing that about it. i love that about it and i'm like what is that and why is it in the late 70s <laughs> it's, like, it's timeless is what it is it's a movie that is completely timeless and i think putting the future tech in it just is there to say this isn't the 70s and 80s this is just an undecipherable point in, point in time and that's and it makes it <laughs> it makes it its own movie it makes it you know this is the world of this movie it's so great so great that's really interesting how about this i'll tell you right now this is not my rating for the overall film this is my rating for the soundtrack it is a 10 out of 10 by this soundtrack it is tremendous i was blown away by the soundtrack also it seemed very john carpenter-esque to me the the score and in fact i was uh i'm I'm working in my office and the other guys in my office were watching Blade Runner the other day. And there are also moments I was just hearing Blade Runner from the other room. There are some moments from Blade Runner that are also very similar to the Follows score. Wow. That's really interesting. I didn't Blade Runner, huh? I haven't seen it in a little while, but yeah. so you heard Blade Runner in this a little bit, maybe? Well, yeah. When I heard, well, I mean, I saw this movie and I was thinking John Carpenter, John Carpenter, John Carpenter. And then I, uh, yeah, I just overheard Blade Runner playing in the other room, and it was the original version with the voiceover. So I don't know if the music is different, you know, version to version. I have it, I have seen it more recently than you, but not. I don't even know what version I saw last. Okay, so there's seven versions of that movie, but um, uh, yeah, anyway, right. Yeah, there was a distinct piece of music that I heard from Blade Runner that was felt very. I don't want to say that it felt reminiscent, uh, but I guess that's what I'm saying. It felt reminiscent of it falls. Obviously it's vice versa, but right. right. <laughs> that's funny. Okay. Well, what else do you want to talk about before we wrap up? Cause I'm just about to the end of my comments. I mean, this is jaws, you know, it's the, to me, you can say jaws is the monster and that's why the jaws is so awesome because of the monster. A lot of it is just the anticipation of the monster showing up. And the ways we see the monster without seeing the monster. And that's that coupled with the, the high level of technical filmmaking for a small independent film, coupled with incredible actors, coupled with <laughs> just a, a, you know, a great level of tension and characters we care about it just makes this, to me, one of the best independent horror films I've seen in years and it's not and and i i almost hate saying that phrase independent horror films like i i was struggling with this last week when we talked about spring because i think there are independent horror films that the horror community the way the horror community thinks of independent horror films yeah and then there's like the way the indie movie crowd thinks of independent films that are horror 
films. And that, this is the latter, I think. Yes, is, I agree. So, so I meaning, meaning that, um, there's a little this, more artistry, a little more, more artistry, technical. And it succeeds as a dramatic piece without the horror elements. I think that's another thing about it. Yeah. So if they if they removed the horror elements, you would still have a film that could potentially stand on its own due to the characters, the quality of the characters, their interactions, and so forth. Right. Right. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Okay, well, anything else before we do the final words on this? Because um, I am in love with It Follows, and I want to see what David Robert Mitchell does next. I would go see this again in theaters, and I suggest that everybody go see this movie um, if you have a chance to see it in the movie theaters. Now, <laughs> all of that stuff we've been seeing and overselling, I'm sure, for a lot of people, it is does have that kind of indie movie vibe to it. It is yeah. a drama and it is about these characters. And so if you don't want to see that, if you just want to see vapid teenagers getting their throats slit, it's not that kind of a movie. So I, you know, I, maybe people who are less patient would have a problem with this and wouldn't enjoy it as much. But I think it's a great film first and foremost, and it happens to be a high tension horror film as well. Oh, yeah. Josh, do you want to have sex with this movie? That I do not want to do. That's the one thing I don't want to do with this movie. Okay. I'm just kidding. You know, but I people, would go to second base with it. You, you know how people say that sometimes, and I think it's especially funny asking it about this movie, no, which course, is about yeah. sex. <laughs> like, I mean, not since Teeth has there been a movie in which <laughs> the female anatomy is such a horror show. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Now, one other thing real quick. Carl, over on Movie Podcast Weekly, he said his friend saw this movie. And his friend's response was, it was weird. <laughs> it's like, it's like, yeah, uh -huh. it is bizarre. <laughs> it is strange. That's true. But I think that's to its credit. It Follows does not need jump scares, though it has some. It does not need gore. This depends on actual fear to scare you. I think it taps into like universal fears within us. Uh, this is an 8.5 out of 10 to me. I say see it in the theater for sure. And I say buy it. It's this year's Babadook. The only reason I took it down a point and a half, it has some issues in its execution, especially where it pertains to CGI type of stuff. They have to pull off a few things that... Um, take me out of the movie a little bit because they do not sell it very well. Now, the thing is, I don't believe that it was a budgetary restriction either, which is why I'm coming down a whole point and a half on that. Otherwise, this would be a 10 out of 10. I would call it a masterpiece if it weren't for that. But Josh... Why don't you think it was a budgetary? Because, like, for example, in this scene where we have a, a character get thrown, right, in that scene... You know, they could have done that slower. It, it didn't have to be like, like you know, like like it's like fast yeah. motion. You almost can't even perceive what happens. And, and I think it was just poor judgment just for one thing. And then the other, like that first gore scene, there was a decision made in that scene, which you know what I'm talking about in the very first aftermath scene. Yeah. <laughs> there was a it's not CGI though. It's not CGI, but it's an effects related decision. And I'm like, mm, 
not the best, but so I mean that not the worst, not the worst either. These are, for these sure. are I would say these are nitpicks, but they they were significant enough for me that it's like, oh man, it ticks it down a little from the well, masterpiece level. Yeah. Otherwise, the one scene that takes it down for me is the swimming pool scene. I feel I feel the oh, way yeah, the yeah. swimming pool scene the way you're talking about these two scenes, which did not bother me. Yeah, I I agree with the, the swimming pool scene as well. Yeah, so so that's a half point for each of those things. <laughs> Do you know that they had to cut a bunch of things from the script for budgetary reasons? So I'm not going to say that it wasn't budgetary. They may just not have had time to do a bunch of different versions of it and see what they liked the best. I think the swimming pool scene, those limitations that we're speaking of, that very well could have been budgetary restrictions because that wasn't executed very well. But the other two scenes, I think, were were blatant decisions on the filmmaker's part. Yeah. But anyway, so 8.5 out of 10 for me. This is a must-see horror film this year. I absolutely loved it. What do you say, Wolfman Josh? This is the movie that everybody's going to be talking about, and you're going to be a loser if you don't see this movie. (laughs) (laughs) It really is, though. Like, this was supposed to be limited release, and it was supposed to be coming to our local art house theater, and I went to go see it, and it had been pushed back a week. And I asked why, and they said, well, it it was so successful in its release in New York and L.A., that they decided to postpone the limited release and just go wide with it. And um, <laughs> that's awesome. The The budget for the film was $2 million, so that's a lot for a low-budget movie, but it's nothing for a regular movie. And um, it made it's already made $6 million so far, and it's still rolling out uh, to, to more and more theaters at the time that we're recording nice. this episode. So it's it's a huge success already by most accounts, for its budget. And it's a great movie. That's not the reason, obviously, to see it. It's is due to its success, but just, just to illustrate that this is something that people are very excited about, not just the two of us. <laughs> I also have to knock some points off for execution, I, only to me for the swimming pool scene. Only, and, and by the way, when I say that, there's still 20 moments in that swimming pool scene that are amazing. Yes, yes. Uh, it's just ultimately I don't like the way they deal with the monster in that scene. But there's a, there's a moment where these hand, where her hands are creeping toward the side of the swimming pool. <laughs> I was like, I, I couldn't believe I was going to lose my mind. I was so scared. Like what's going to happen. What's going to happen. Like I was just literally on the edge of my seat. Yes. yes. And that's how I was most of this movie. Um, it's, it's a great movie. I, I also am going to knock points off for those types of things, but not as much as you. I'm going to give this a nine. It is absolutely see in the theater. If this sounds interesting to you, what we've described, if you don't like or care about characters, I know we have friends in the horror community that say it's not about characters. It's about the kills. This might not be the movie for you just to be honest. But if you just like movies and, and you like a nice thrill ride with some heavy horror elements and tension this is the movie for you go see it in the theater right away buy it when it comes out on blu-ray and i'm going to do that myself and i might even see this again in the theater that's how much i liked it yeah uh, honestly if i weren't restricted to one theater viewing per week i would see it again in the theater yeah. no lie yeah. so josh you can buy it for me when it comes out as well 
Okay. I would love it. So anyways. <laughs> we'll have to do a contest and you're going to have to do something to earn it. Yes. Okay. That sounds good. And by the way, just one quick update. Sorry. I was trying to search around for the filmmaker telling that story about the, the uh, origins of it. Origins. Yeah. The film, it was, it was based on a reoccurring nightmare he had as a child about someone, a child walking toward him and it wasn't who he thought it was. Oh, nice. So it wasn't a real life experience, but it was from his childhood and reoccurring. Yes. By the way, one last little PS on this. Now that we have no context to place it in, there is a scene involving a mother in this that is genuinely, deeply, deeply disturbing to me. Yeah. So upsetting. Anyway, you guys, you guys got to see this movie. We loved it. So that's our review of It Follows from 2015. Let us know what you think. And I I would say that scene is unnecessary unless the reading that I'm having makes sense. You know what I mean? Like it, yeah, I I feel like it only exists to support that reading. Otherwise it doesn't really have a place in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm with you. I I think you got a great point there as always. All right. In this point in episode 50, we're going to hear from Dr. Shock. He's got a review of Gothic. Okay, this is a movie from 1986, I want to say. 87, excuse me. And it's directed by uh, Ken Russell. If you remember, we we talked about um, Altered States Mm -hmm. on here not too long ago. Uh, but this is a this is an an interesting one in the story that it tells because it takes place in 1816 and it's about the summer where Mary Shelley got the inspiration to write Frankenstein and uh, Dr. John Polidori ended up writing The Vampire, which would be an influence in in several ways on even Bram Stoker's Dracula. But uh, anyway, it's it's the summer of 1816. Julian Sands plays Percy Shelley, him and Mary, um, Mary Godwin, I guess is her name at this point, uh, played by Natasha Richardson, and uh, Mary's stepsister Claire, played by Miriam Sear, go to visit Lord Byron at a villa that he's staying at in Lake Geneva. Now, Lord Byron is played by Gabriel Byrne, uh, and he's there with his personal physician, who's Dr. John Polidori. Um, and I think that's Timothy Spall who plays him. And so that's the five main characters here. But as there's a storm outside, the five that sort of get together and they read from this book of ghost stories. And it's at that point that Lord Byron makes a suggestion. He says, why don't they all try their hand at writing a horror story? But what the movie does is, you know, it talks that they're drinking uh, wine uh, laced with uh, laudanum at this point. And um, they start to experience some horrific images and believe that they're they actually have a seance at one point. And it's at that point, Lord Byron's like, let's bring your your deepest, darkest fears to life that some of them believe that that their fears have actually been given life. And they start to see things and experience things, leading them to believe that there's there might even be a creature stalking them. Um, so that's where the horror of the story comes in. The casting is interesting. You know, Gabriel Byrne's always an actor who, you know, going back to this, his role as Uther in, in, in Excalibur, I've always liked Gabriel Byrne, especially in like the usual suspects and, and, uh, Miller's crossing and movies like that. Yeah. Uh, but he, he does a good job as, as, as Lord Byron. He really does. Byron is, is, I guess what you could almost 
view as as the the villain of the piece. You know, he's the mm-hmm. one. He's he's the deviant, and he's the one who sort of pushes everybody else to experience their deepest fear. He's the it's Wolfman like, uh, Josh of. I the was crew. gonna say it's like Kevin <laughs> J. <Jay. laughs> <laughs> yeah, in a way, yeah. He's the one who, who sort of starts everything rolling. And Natasha Richardson is very reserved as Mary Shelley, which is I understand that's how the character, that's how that character was. Um, you know, the, the Mary was was definitely a little shyer, a little more reserved than than everyone else uh, at this gathering. And uh, it's funny because they're, they're talking in the and there's a they show titles at the beginning of the movie, and I can't remember what night exactly, but they say on this night in June of 1816, two legends were born, and. Those legends, of course, were the vampire and Frankenstein's monster, um, which is the birth of what would be the monsters, the beastly freaks, if you will, oh. mm. that would lead the heart. Now, this is the second movie I had seen based on the same topic. There is a film from a couple years later by Ivan Passer directed it called Haunted Summer, which oddly enough was a movie I think originally John Huston was was they were approaching him to direct that movie that that tackled the same subject. That casting was interesting too. it had Eric Stoltz as Percy Shelley. It had Alice Krieg as Mary Shelley or uh, Mary Godwin, but that one took more of a dramatic approach. There wasn't really a horror element in that one. It was more of a, of a dramatic telling of, of that summer. Uh, this one, you know, with, with Ken Russell at the helm, definitely takes, takes it more in a horror direction, yeah. you know, from, from the way that they're, that they're playing it. Now it's, it's a good movie, but the problem I had with it is, yeah, Ken Russell, we've talked about him before. He's a visual filmmaker. He loves to sort of throw those striking images into the film. Yeah. In a movie like Altered States, the images sort of supported the story. In another movie of his, like Tommy, the images, that was the story. You know, that was what it was about, all the craziness. Gothic leans more towards Tommy, where I think it, the approach would have been better suited if it was more like Altered States. Um, he's constantly bombarding you with, with, with bizarre imagery and these, these scenes that are just sort of disjointed and thrown in. Sometimes it works. There's this really creepy shot. You know, it's played backwards of somebody walking down the stairs backwards that just really works. I mean, it's, it's creepy, but it's just a constant barrage of these images and it really does get in the way at times. I mean, they've got things in here, you know, that there's uh, um, these the sort of life-size, almost like clockwork toy th- things. One that, you know, that play the piano and so forth that they got in here. There's a quick scene of, you know, it's sort of a dream sequence of a woman that, whose breasts and she's got eyeballs where the nipples should be. You know, it, it's just constant. It's a little too much on the imagery. I dated a, a, a little, like a that little, one time. Oh, yeah, right. That's, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I'd like him looking back at me. Um, but there's a taste of your own medicine. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, right. Checking me out for, well for a done. change. Well done. Russell probably should have been, I think, uh, they should have pulled in the reins a little on him on this one. And I think it would have definitely benefited. He Also, the score in the movie was done by Thomas Dolby, you know, Mr. They, uh, she Blinded Me With Science. And it's a good score, but it's very bombastic. I mean, even at the beginning, when they're just arriving at the mansion, the score is playing as if this very dramatic 
um, almost horrific thing had happened when really they're just running through the rain to get up to the mansion. It's it's a very intrusive score even. (laughs) So it's almost like he's trying to turn this into this this sensory – uh, it's like a sensory overload is, is what he's made the movie, whereas I think the story itself would have been a little more interesting told on a little more even keel. Um, I, I did enjoy the movie. I did like it. I'd probably give it because of that more along the lines of like a five and a half to a six and say it's a rental. Okay. I'm fascinated with the premise of this movie, and I didn't know that any movie existed about this famed uh trip to the cabin that you know this is just a a topic that i'm so interested in i, I love that there are two movies about it that i now get to see <laughs> yeah <laughs> and then inter- interesting. I, yeah and if you check them out Josh, i'd like to hear what you think about them because for me haunted summer is the better movie because it addresses the the the, the story more if you're a horror fan you're going to want to go to gothic Gothic will be the one that that's going to give you more of what you're looking for. However, it's just a little too much. And and being a fan of Ken Russell too, yeah. um, you know, I think that would be it'd be an interesting watch. But this is definitely Ken Russell, uh, slightly unhinged in, in a way. Whoa. You know, where there should have been a little less Ken Russell. Now, I think is is it would have benefited the movie. Quick question: I don't remember this in The Bride of Frankenstein, but according to Leonard Maltin, and maybe you said this already, he said that this was previously depicted in The Bride of Frankenstein. Do you remember that? Because I don't. Depict oh the oh very opening scene of Bride of Frankenstein is a quick little two minute throwback, mm. um, and it has who was it Elsa Lancaster who played um, the bride in that? Yeah. Yeah, it has her playing Mary Shelley, just quickly talking about, could you believe, you know, they have this very dramatic, could you believe that from the mind of this frail, innocent creature sprang a monster like Frankenstein's, you know, like really sort of over the top. (laughs) Yes, it's like a quick little three minute opening at the very beginning of Bride of Frankenstein. See, I heard a radio play of this uh, evening or this weekend once and... um, that's what that's kind of my only interaction with it. And I just that was so mesmerizing to me. We talked about I was on the sci-fi podcast this last week and we talked about iconic VHS covers, which we've talked about on this show as well. But mm-hmm. Gothic is one of those that I just remember seeing as a kid and it flipping like me out, just seeing it just being totally creeped out oh, by yeah. the image. And- it's weird. And and Doc, I wanted to see if you'd talk about that and, and how it relates to the film itself. The image, you know, and I have to pull that up here. Um, let me take a look at it because I've seen the. It's like is a little poster art. Yeah. A little Anthony's looking down over a, over a woman. Mm-hmm. That's actually a classic painting, from what I understand. But there is a scene in the movie that almost bring, brings that painting to life in a way. Um, there is this creature that you see there. He he is there, but it's it's based on a, on a very, fa- from what I understand, a famous work of art. Well, and, and hopefully this will get people to, to actually look this up. If you go to IMDb and look up Gothic from 1986, look at the imp's left hand. You notice him. He's kind of like kneeling up on her chest. I mean, like stooping on her chest. And then you look at her. But then if you look at his left hand, then it's really freaky because he's got this claw that yeah. he's kind of like, yeah. you know, getting ready to grab her. I hate his face, too. 
Yeah. And this is, and this is not, yeah. I mean, he's got, and this is not the monster they conjure up. The monster they conjure up, um, that, that's the embodiment of all of their fears. You know, and they have, the, the fears are, are kind of interesting. Um, you know, Percy Shelley's has to do with God because Percy Shelley was, was, you know, a, a staunch non-believer and he was believed in the power of man. Um, and so his is almost, I want to put it like his fear is, what if I'm wrong type of thing? You, you know, like what, what, what's going to happen to me if there really is this afterlife? And, and what, is there a place for me in it? Uh, Mary Shelley's deals with the loss of a child. She actually had a, a miscarriage and she was really interested. She, she says at one point, and I'm thinking this was dramatized for the movie. I don't know that there's any record of Mary Shelley actually saying this, but saying that, that she would give anything to bring that child back to life. I sense Pumpkinhead plot coming. Yeah. <laughs> right, or something, or maybe Frankenstein, you know, to, to bring the child back to life in that way. Yeah. Dr. John Polidori is, is in this as well, and he's fascinated with uh, being a physician at the time. They, they sort of make him fascinated with leeches and, and, uh, and that whole thing. So, of course, he's going to, to lean towards a story like The Vampire. Um, when he finally when he finally pens his um, and from what I understand uh, that they, they really did make this deal that they would all write a horror story they did sit around reading from a book of horror stories but the only two who actually followed through with or actually I shouldn't say that I think Shelley followed through with some sort of, of poem or something um, Lord Byron had started one and abandoned it it wasn't working out for him so he never finished it but I think Dr. Polidori and Mary Shelley were the only two who followed through with theirs. I'm looking at this uh, article about the poster. It says um, it was based on a classical painting, Henry Fuseli's The Nightmare. It was actually the, the movie poster was banned from being shown in London public transportation. They weren't allowed to hang the poster in the tube and oh, buses and stuff like that. Interesting. Wow. Uh, yeah, I knew it had been based on a painting. I didn't know which one, though. Thank you. So, Doc, you rate Gothic from 1986. You give it a 5.5 5 out of 10? I'll, I'll give it a 6. six? I'm going to go up to give it a 6 because I do want people – I do think it's worth checking out. Um, I just think it's, it's, it's a little too much. It's a little too much of Ken Russell. Uh, if there is such a thing, uh, you know, it, whereas it, like I said, in altered states, it was like that was perfect because he was telling a story and he had these images that were supporting it and Gothic, they take over, you know, Just, all of the, the craziness takes over. Despite your rating based on your discussion, I'm actually buying this currently. Oh, OK. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I'll be interested to hear what I'll be interested to hear what you what you think about it, Josh. And definitely and Haunted Summer, I think. Is available as a as a DVD-R from, and I don't I, I don't think it's through the the Warner Home Archives, but I know that it's available because I I have a copy of that one also. Okay. Maybe it's Paramount. I can't remember which studio had put that one out, uh, but that one, like I said, that's a little bit more of a dramatic telling of uh, of the weekend. Nice. Uh, but in both of them, Lord Byron is seducing the the stepsister and sort of sleeping with her. But neither one is is very what am I trying to say? They, they don't paint Lord Byron in a, in a in a particularly good light. Neither movie does. Although I think he comes off looking a little bit better in Haunted Summer, if I if I'm not mistaken, than he definitely than he does in uh, in Gothic. And for the listeners out there, Haunted Summer is from 1988. Yes. Okay, that's great. Two years later, from what I understand, there's even a third telling of this, and I'm not sure 
Uh, I can't remember which which movie that I, is now. I'm looking but I at think it right now. It's called Rowing with the Wind. Okay. And it stars Hugh Grant. And it was a, it, it came out the same year as Haunted Summer, 1988. Wow. How how interesting that the this this story that that just you wouldn't think you know I mean like you were saying, Josh, a few years ago I didn't realize I didn't hear about these movies either, but that there's three of them out there all made in a relatively short time period. I mean, you're talking within two years of each other. Really must have captured people's imaginations at that time. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's super interesting. And that's from 1988, Rowing with the Wind? That is correct. Hugh Grant film. Okay, all right. Wow. So, yeah, listeners. And that if you... one is listed as a drama horror mystery, hmm. whereas Haunted Summer on IMDb is listed as just a drama romance. Yeah, that, that's definitely more along the lines of what it is. And Gothic, I think, would be even more horror. It doesn't even get into the romance part. I mean, the romantic the romantic scenes in this movie actually lend itself more to the horror than they do to any sort of drama. Yeah, and just to back you up on IMDb, it is listed only as horror Gothic is. Okay, interesting. Oh. All right. Well, thanks for bringing us that review, Doc. That was very interesting. No problem. <laughs> Now it's time for one of my favorite segments. Wolfman's got nards. Okay, this week on Wolfman's Got Nards, I got around to a film that's been on my list for a while, um, but one that I just kind of kept putting aside, and I eventually decided to watch it because I thought it might tie in thematically to It Follows. <laughs> yes. And um, that is Contracted. Nice. And this is a movie that you've talked about and Bill Shetty talked about and, um, you know, is pretty beloved within certain circles. And I hated it. You hated this? Hated it. Oh, my goodness. I'm really mad right now. Why? Because the entire story is nonsense. The acting... I felt like was brutal. That may have just been compounded by the editing, which was terrible. So I was like <laughs> the editing and the script were both really bad. And I couldn't tell if the editing was so bad that it was also making the acting and the script seem even worse than they were. But the story that's happening and this character and her arc are so painful to sit through. She is so annoying and so unlikable and her reactions to everything don't make any sense except to further the narrative. It feels like one of the ultimate examples of this Roger Ebert idiot plot where it's just like, go to the doctor, go to the police, everything's solved. Like just do what a normal human being would do. And this movie wouldn't be happening the way it is. Also, it started out great. <laughs> Let me start out by saying it started out pretty good, but it, to me it got worse and worse and worse. And at the halfway point, it just became unto- intolerable for me. Now, due to the ultimate reveal of the film, which I don't want to give away, I'm actually willing to grant it back a couple of points that I had been docking it just because I now see where they were headed and some of the choices that happened in the film, which seem nonsensical. You can. So, do you mean where it ends up eventually by the end of the, the film? The very last scene of the movie. Yeah, which I wish it had been the last 15 minutes of the movie, but whatever. Or the last half of the movie would have been even better. Yeah. But it's, it's kind of, I don't even want to give, I don't know. I don't even want to say anything about it. Um, right. But Unbreakable is like a movie that comes to mind when I think of the format structure of this film. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Um, 
but I just really dislike this main character. Her hobby of flowers is a really bad choice. Her care, her girlfriend character who is an American putting on a fake and terrible British accent for absolutely no story reason. There's nothing in the story that tells us she needs to be British. We just have an American actress putting on a bad accent for no reason in this movie. It's so hard to listen to the pacing of every cut is bad. Like it's not just like the pacing of scenes in the movie overall are bad, but like sentences within a scene it's like each sentence every time i cut from one shot to another it's difficult to watch for me wow um, and it's yeah blown i just away hated, right now i hated so much about this movie partially i'm going to grant you it was my own expectations because the poster for this movie is beautiful and the make you know, and it reveals some of the makeup effects that happen later in the film, which are really well done. And I'd heard so much praise for this film coming off of it follows. I was just ready to have this amazing experience. And I thought, and it really does not do it any favors to compare it to it follows in my mind. Um, it's a, it's not good for contracted to be mentioned in the same sentence, in my opinion. Um, oh, it's dealing goodness. also with like kind of a sexually transmitted disease situation that ends up having a better kind of horror implication. But again, that doesn't make sense within the mythology that we know about where this movie eventually goes. The villain of this piece, who really is the main character, honestly, but the, the villain they give us in this piece doesn't make sense <laughs> at all. Well, no, 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 no. Especially no. when he shows up again later in the film. Like, it's not like he is a disease-ridden guy on his last legs, and he's not, he seems to be more of like this, almost like a rabbit that we talked about last week, like just this killer of lovers. And um, and it actually has a lot, maybe is a better compared film to rabid than it is to follows but ugh, i just really dislike this movie you talked about movies that show gore and that's supposed to be scary this movie is just filled with viscera and goo and barf and blood and it's not scary <laughs> it's a little unsettling it's not as uns i mean the closest movie to this is the fly this is also pales in comparison to the fly this is no fly <laughs> It's gross, and there's no and who cares? Because I don't care about this character. I don't care about what she's going through. She's not interesting. She's not heartwarming. There's nothing. There's just nothing to hold on to in this movie for me at all. Oh my goodness. Okay. All right. Hang on. Hang on. So for those who don't know, Contracted came out in 2013, and the premise: a girl is date raped by a stranger at a party, and she contracts what she thinks. Is a sexually transmitted disease. Maybe. Maybe. She thinks she doesn't even like really seem. All she seems concerned with is what is my ex-girlfriend going to think about all of this? <laughs> right. And I need to go to work, even though it's obviously not a good idea for you to be going to work. It's just <laughs> my mommy is being really mean to me when I'm trying to pursue my new career of plant grow of flower growing in the closet. Like, why? Why? Why are all these things in the movie? It's so <laughs> dumb. 
Well, and, and whatever it is that she contracts is actually something much, much worse. Now, first is of all, is it though? Like, we don't really know what it is. I'd say so. Eventually, I'd, we know. That's but worse literally than a, only for 20 seconds of the movie. Well, here's the thing. Yeah, and, and again, I'm with you. That should have been the last 15 minutes at least. I would have loved to have had more of that. But this is all about abjection, and our buddy Kyle Bishop loves to talk about that, where yeah, that, that fear, that, that horror of seeing the body just slough away and fall apart and fall off you. It, do you remember when we watched The Fly a few weeks ago? Right, right. What's what you? This movie doesn't need to exist in the same world that the fly. <laughs> this is, you know, that it has that in common with the fly, but this is a different film from the fly. But I mean, the abject is the only thing that this has going for it, and it's fine, and they do it pretty well. But it's okay. The cinematography, I will also say, is seventy-five percent great as well. Well, they, they, it's it's shot nicely, but really, there's nothing else going for this film. Josh what is scarier honestly if you if you had this habit to you I mean what is scarier than your body falling apart and you not knowing why it's falling apart that's horrifying if she was concerned about it I might care but like she all she does is spout the f word at the mirror I'll and then g- just go about her normal business <laughs> I, I will she give you I'll give you one thing you're right I mean the way that she is kind of in some kind of amazingly like just crazy <laughs> denial about it. She, she doesn't even, she doesn't even recognize, Hey, you know, my, my um fingernails are falling off or whatever. This could be a major problem. She does go to a doctor, but it's like, yeah, she doesn't acknowledge it the way that I think a normal human being would. Like when she she has a scene where she kind of gets intimate with a dude toward the last third of the film, he has the appropriate response. But he's the only person right. in the movie that has the appropriate response. <laughs> right. Every other person that runs into her is like, you need some Visine? Do you have a cold? Yeah. What are you talking about? No, obviously she doesn't have a cold. One of her eyes has gone milky in two days. <laughs> like she needs to immediately be quarantined. Like, and and the fact that no one around her cares, including people who supposedly are in love with her, there's no way. There's there there are a couple of lesbian encounters in this movie, not like in a hot and heavy way. Just that's this character is seems to be bisexual. There's no way that girl kisses her, and no way does she kiss her. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I will give you there are some weird character motivation things that do not make sense. The characters do not act in a logical way. Almost every character in the movie. But something I think you missed is the guy that gives her the disease in the beginning. Yeah. Did you did you catch how he contracted whatever it is that he passed along to her? How he contracted it? Yes. No. I okay. Didn't. Yeah, I talked about this before in a podcast of people i'll just kind of out with it right here um it's in the very beginning of the film he works in a morgue we see him oh that's what was going on at the beginning i couldn't figure out what was happening yeah he hops up on that dead body and 
you know because <laughs> no, we I see w- the dead body the the yeah. toe moving or something so I thought maybe he was just cleaning it or something <laughs> no it's getting some action i mean i so, get it now the minute you say that now i get it so he contracts it through that now whether or not whatever he got from it you know affects him or takes longer to affect him just like any disease i mean we all react differently to a cold for example some people get more sick with a cold. Some people it takes longer uh, for them to get sick. It seems like he's kind of going out of his way to like, okay, I lived in Europe for a few years mm-hmm. and I was living in the Netherlands and um, I was in a city called Delft and nearby there was a city called The Hague or Den Haag in, in Dutch and they completely shut down that city and like three of the surrounding cities that we were in and they did like a door-to-door police search where literally like every policeman from every surrounding city like linked hands and walked through the entire city looking for this guy. Because there was this super rich dude that got AIDS and he decided he was going to fly. And I I don't know if he got it from a prostitute, but he decided he was going to fly around the world and give AIDS to as many people as he could. And he started sleeping with prostitutes all over Holland where prostitution is legal and just trying to give people AIDS. And that's the kind of dude this guy seems like in the movie based on the very limited interaction we have with him. He seems like he's doing it on purpose, both to her and to the other, you know, brief moment we have with him in the movie. I get now what you're saying, and that makes a lot of sense. It's a great setup for where the film eventually goes, but I don't get his character again just all the characters seem very wishy-washy wow well i'm very sad that makes me like it more like what you're saying the first 20 seconds and the last 20 seconds make me appreciate the movie a little bit more unfortunately there's an hour and a half in between those two 20 second clips yeah but it's a it's a very un meaning unpleasant as in it makes you uneasy it's gross (laughs) i think it's a a freaky a fun kind of freaky hour and a half. I mean, just don't eat while you're watching this. That's not fun. But anyway, well, I think this is a cool cautionary tale. I think it's a great little metaphor for venereal disease or, you know, is it a cautionary tale? Like what's the, what is the moral then? When your friend who's in love with you, tries to get you drunk and your best friend sells a predator roofies, <laughs> like what is the cautionary tale don't trust the people closest to you no i mean i just think it's a cautionary tale for venereal disease and promiscuity and so forth i mean i know that she was date raped so that's not her fault but yeah. i'm just well, saying but that, it happens to be her two best for her best friend and her love interests fault. <laughs> yeah yeah so i'm just saying that i think that you know, one could take Where that message away. Is definitely a theme of this film. It comes <laughs> up a couple times. Yeah, at least. I think this would be a, a fun double feature with Afflicted, another movie where someone contracts something. And I think it's freaky. Anyway, I, I think Rabbit is maybe my choice. But. I couldn't sit through Rabbit again. Sorry. But, anyways. You thought Rabbit was worse than the. No. Oh. No, actually, uh, this is I'm I'm really pretty fond of this movie, but I'll, okay, I'll you so, rate yours first, and I'll give you. Well, I, no, you don't get to. This is my segment. You've already rated it. 
<laughs> I'll just remind people what it is then. Um, you know, when I was watching this movie, it started out that I kind of liked it, but as it reached the midpoint, I was really starting to hate it. And about halfway, I thought if I was going to rate the movie right now, I'd give it a 4.5 and say it's a low priority rental recommendation. But then the movie kept going. And for the next 25% or so, this dropped down to close to a zero, like in the one the one point range for wow. me. The last scene is almost enough for it to rebound a bit. I give this movie credit for the concept. I give it credit for the makeup effects are brilliant. They're really well done. They're not the fly, but they look great. Mm-hmm. The movie poster promised, and I, I know I'm doing what you do and that I always get mad at you for, but it's only, <laughs> and it is only my own expectations. It promised a sophisticated film. The poster looks sophisticated. The movie is anything but sophisticated. Uh, it's just nonsensical. It's poorly written. Characters don't track. The acting's pretty bad, mostly. There are a couple actors that can pull it off. Uh, the boy that likes her is pretty good. She, the main actress, is okay sometimes, but mostly the acting's atrocious throughout the film. The cinematography is mostly really good, but the editing is so bad that it makes the whole movie just drag for me. Um, not to mention the writing and the acting. I get it, I'm going to give this a three and call it an avoid. No, come on. I, yeah, I really regret having watched this movie. <laughs> Josh is crazy, everybody. Don't listen to him. It's 7.5. Must see rental. Must see rental. Come on, Josh. Three? That's low. It's awful. It's awful. <laughs> I would feel bad for anybody who would watch this movie. If we hadn't been podcasting for what? What is it now? Four hours. How long have we been going for? I don't know. If I weren't so tired, I'd fight with you more, but. You know what? Watch The Fly if you want to see the abject. Watch It Follows if you want to see an interesting take on what is possibly uh, STD-related or sex-related horror driver. Um, Both of those movies are far superior to this movie, like in a different hemisphere. It's okay. It's not worth watching, though. It's you know I, I appreciate what they were trying to do. There were a couple of skilled craftsmen that worked on it. There were more that were not skilled. <laughs> oh, don't listen to Josh. Everybody who's seen tra- Contracted, weigh in and let us know what you thought in the show notes for episode 50. Don't watch it after you watched It Follows. If you're going to see this movie, see it before you see It Follows. And try not to ever think of It Follows while you're watching this. <laughs> <laughs> it really, I mean, that is part of the problem too. Just the fact that I was expecting this to be maybe a nice double feature. and it Well, just, how is that fair to this movie? I mean, how can you do that? It's hard for this. This movie fails by comparison, and I feel bad for it. But I don't think I could have liked it otherwise either. I, I mean, I, <laughs> I tried. I wanted to give this a 4.5 low priority. And then it just said, pshaw. No. This can get much worse, buddy. Just watch. And it did. <laughs> This terrible British accent and these just I, I can't I can't handle I can't handle this anymore. <laughs> you're killing comments. me with this. You know what you're doing to me right now? I feel like I've contracted <laughs> that disease from Pontypool because like the more you're talking and hating on this movie, the more it's making me feel like I am afflicted somehow. Okay, well we have some lesbian <laughs> listeners in our audience. 
Please let us know if you think this is a fair depiction of a lesbian relationship. It seems like the most jacked relationship I've ever seen. And if it's not, send us video of what is. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> I'm really tired. I hope you consider cutting that out. Okay. I, I, I think it would maybe shock some people. Kind of funny. <laughs> it's I think it'll be all right if I leave in you saying, I hope you consider cutting that out. That's really funny. <laughs> so, guys, I got IMDb up in front of us, of course. And I'm looking here and I see that there is on Lifetime, which I know that doesn't bode well necessarily, the Lizzie Borden Chronicles with Christina Ricci. So, I mean, where have I been? I mean, did you guys know about this? Is this something no. that I should have known about? I have heard about it in passing. When did I hear about it? Actually, my wife watches Lifetime, and I think maybe I caught commercial for it or something. I'm not sure, but nothing that I've ever, you know, like sought out or like looked into or anything like that. I mean, it's Christina Ricci, though, is an interesting actress. Well, yeah, and the reason I think this is particularly interesting and noteworthy on the podcast tonight is because... In 2014, there was the TV movie, Lizzie Borden Took an Axe, and I rented that from Redbox, and it was actually yeah. really good, and that stars her as Lizzie Borden. She did a good job, and I just wondered if people who saw that, somebody somewhere said, hey, she's really good in that role. Let's do a um, TV miniseries on it. Interesting. And you know, I mean, that whenever I think of Lizzie Borden, the, you can't think of it without, without thinking of, those, of the pictures of the crime scene. Which oh, are all over. Have you ever seen those? Yeah. Um, with with deep. the father laying there, the body looking perfectly intact, and the head just gone, just crushed. Yeah, destroyed, uh, yes. Yeah, I mean, it, it's really, it's very, even, it doesn't matter about what time period it is or how many years have passed. It's extremely disturbing, those, those crime scene photos of the mother and father. It's brutal and, stuff. And in that Lizzie Borden took an axe TV movie, they still addressed that pretty well to the point that it was still disturbing. Wow. So, yeah. And as long as we're on the topic of television, um, I'm actually going to start a show this week. Um, I believe it's just one season. I'm really excited to watch it. Did you guys ever see the documentary Zombie Girl? I know yes. about it. Haven't yep. seen it. Mm -hmm. Really we fun. Watched it, we part. watched that on, yeah, for uh, one of the weekly horror, uh, Jay. Yeah, um, later episodes, yeah. Uh, uh, yep, definitely. It's a fun little doc. It's about, you know, a teenage girl making, trying to make her own low budget zombie movie. Just a really, you know, pleasurable watch, even, even though it's, you know, kind of low budget and home movie-esque. Mm -hmm. uh, the Sci-Fi Channel and True TV did a show called Town of the Living Dead that premiered this last October, October 2014. And it's a, it's a television series with 12 episodes that's basically the same idea. It's following a crew um, an amateur filmmakers in uh, Alabama who are trying to make this movie called Three Days Dead, and they've been working on the film for six years. And the film, the television series, chronicles them completing the the movie um, over over twelve episodes, and uh, it looks really great. It's called Town of the Living Dead. Wow, very interesting. I want to yeah, see that. the movie if it took them six years to make it. Yeah, I'm curious. That would be interesting to see. I, I th the thing with Zombie Girl, and I guess we don't want to get into that right now too much in case we cover it later on, but the one thing that always stuck with me about that is, 
you know, because you take lessons away from this is always be sure that you know who who you're bringing in to be in the movie because Josh, I'm sure, and you've seen Zombie Girl, I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, she she does the shoot in inside. She's given permission to shoot inside a supermarket at one point. Well, some of the friends that she has in there, you know, they're they're wearing the makeup of the zombies. They go into the bathroom of the supermarket and they end up trashing it with all of this this blood and makeup and everything. And it really angers the manager of the supermarket. He ends up regretting letting them go in there and do you know having done this. And then she gets home and realizes she needs to do reshoots. Yeah. Oh, so man. what is she going to do at that point? I also love that it features C. Robert Cargill, um, who who went on to write <laughs> Sinister a few years later. Oh, right, right, yes. yeah. A good That's podcaster, kind of too, by the way. Oh, yeah? Oh. Yeah, he was on the Slash Filmcast quite a bit. That's right. Under Massaworm, is that correct? Yeah, from Ain't It Cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay, nice. So let us know, Josh, how Town of the Living Dead is. I will let you know. And at this point in episode 50 of Horror Movie Podcast, we are joined by a very special guest. He is the twisted mind that is behind the Dead as Hell Horror Podcast. And just a little side note on that. If you're not familiar with the Dead as Hell Horror Podcast, let me just tell you one thing about that show. If you want some hardcore horror reviews like here on horror movie podcast we're dead serious about horror movies but sometimes we're a little touchy-feely let's be honest but if you want some hardcore horror reviews you go see the dead as hell horror podcast and i want to welcome the host of that show he is a friend of mine one sick puppy welcome good evening good evening sir (laughs) no holds barred at dead as hell that's That's true That's true, but you do have a very friendly voice. So um. yes, it's it's all a disguise. <laughs> it's a ruse. I do. I try not to to totally bash on indie films, but uh, anybody else, I'll rub my new one. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, and a lot of times that's well deserved. So there you go. Now um, I'm still here with my good buddy, Doctor Shock, and Wolfman Josh has stepped away. So one sick puppy. You wrote me with a great idea. I was genuinely impressed, and you had this crossover episode in mind. Do you want to explain that whole concept to the listeners and what we're going to be doing? Yeah, basically, I just had a brain cell erupt, and uh, I thought, well, why don't we take a series and do part of it on horror movie podcasts and do part of it on Dead as Hell? So I uh, emailed Jay, and he said, yeah, I'll take the first two, and you take the the last two of uh, Pumpkinhead. Yes. So I have actually not ever seen the last two Pumpkinheads. Mm. So that was uh, a very interesting choice for me. So <laughs> I I was pleased to get that reply. I would go so far to say, Doctor Shock, you can tell me what you think about this, and maybe I'm wrong. But the last two Pumpkinheads, we'll talk about this more in the future. But they were made for TV movies. And I think there are a lot of horror fans that haven't even seen those. They're somewhat difficult to track down, actually. Do you think that's true that a lot of horror fans haven't actually seen those, even though this franchise Well, is- I can be honest with you. I haven't seen them. Okay. I haven't seen um, uh, three or four. So, I, you know, I, I don't know that I can base it on that. I don't know to say, well, because I haven't seen them. Most haven't seen them. But I think what I think your reasoning is, is probably right. I mean, I, mean, I think that... Uh, if you look at it, those last two might be some voids in in most people's or, or in a good many people's, you know, viewing uh, viewing experiences. Yeah. 
Yeah, so this is exciting. So just to clarify then, so right now on this show, episode 50, you're going to get in-depth reviews of Stan Winston's Pumpkinhead from 1988, and then we're going to bring you an in-depth review of its direct-to-video sequel, Pumpkinhead 2, Blood Wings from 1994. And then on the same day that this releases, so over if you go right now over to That Is Hell Horror Podcast, then you will get the third and fourth movies reviewed over there on One Sick Puppy Show. And that's the Pumpkinhead Ashes to Ashes from 2006 and Pumpkinhead Blood Feud from 2007. And so if you're listening to this episode here, you know, as soon as you finish up these two reviews, go catch three and four and see what we think about those two. We'd love to have you check out both podcasts. Yeah, and that's at deadashellhp.com on iTunes or Stitcher and at uh, tangentboundnetwork.com. Mm-hmm. You can find us any of those places. Yes, and we'll have it linked in the show notes for this episode as well. Everything he just said. Awesome. So just a warning to the listeners out there on Horror Movie Podcast, we typically don't reveal spoilers, but in order to review these movies as in-depth as we're hoping to, then we need to talk about major plot points and spoilers. So this episode in particular will contain major spoilers for Pumpkinhead and Pumpkinhead 2 Blood Wings. But without further delay, let's move into our feature review of Pumpkinhead from 1988. Afraid raising the dead ain't within my power. Should I be afraid? It's coming! <laughs> Looking for an old woman. She lives somewhere in the mountains hereabouts. All she can do is take you straight to hell. You go home and you bury your boy. Some folks will say is how she's got powers. Who are you? Ed Harley. What do you want, Ed Harley? Sad. You're looking for vengeance. Vengeance. Sad. There's no graveyard way back deep in them woods. The thing you're looking for is in there. Pumpkinhead was directed by special effects master Stan Winston. Does everybody here agree that he is a special effects master? Yes, I Absolutely. Okay, good. I'm glad we all... <laughs> that's at least one thing that we can agree on on this episode. And that's great. Right, right, down, right down the time. I will. And the date. That's impressive. That's right. So, um, in fact, this was his feature-length directorial debut. He did not direct many films during his life, actually. And I would go so far as to say I didn't see his other feature-length film, but I would say that this is probably his best. This stars Lance Henriksen. And this was given a limited theatrical release in the United States in October of 1988. And then it was released again in January of 1989. Now, I don't really remember that much about that stuff, you guys. Do you think it was because it started to get a little bit of buzz? Like, why do you think they re-released it in January 89? Any ideas on that? Probably just for Oscar consideration. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, that's funny. I mean, maybe for the effect, I mean, the creature effects, I don't know. Maybe they thought they had something super special there, but that's hilarious. I kind of doubt it. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't know unless they just thought that um, maybe, uh, I can't say for sure. I I have no idea. Maybe they didn't get uh, a proper release the first time around. Yeah. And and they might have thought that hey, you know, we got something a little we got something better here than than the performance shows. Let's let's try to let's try to release it a little differently or mm-hmm. I don't know. I I could be completely off base with that, but it's just a possibility. Well, I think you're right because it was limited release and I think that when they see if something has some degree of legs as they say, you know, January's a dead month for the cinema. A lot of times they'll put a super crappy horror movie out in January. Like, um, what was that? One missed call. I always think of that as a January horror movie. <laughs> that, that, that yeah. Amazing. Just, just, yeah. That, that, unfortunately, <laughs> they, a few years ago, they, they tried to, they tested the waters by putting Cloverfield mm-hmm. out. I'm pretty sure that was a January release. It was January um, 18th of 2008. In fact. Yeah. And they tested the waters. Say, Hey, what kind of response can we get in January? Because you're right. For years, it was always just, oh, well, this is junk. Let's just throw it in January and, and just because we have to release it and maybe we'll get lucky. And most time they didn't. But, uh, yeah, I think that, you know, I think that I think any month of the year, if, if you give a movie the proper advertising, you know, the, the proper push, mm-hmm. I think I think any month of the year can, can be can be profitable as, as Cloverfield proved. But I think up till 2008, yeah, January was just the, okay, here's the crap we're going to throw in January just because we have to, and then we'll move on. Let's sort of, then we'll start focusing on, on the summer months, which fu- funny how the cinematic summer begins May 1st. Um, and then last year it began in April because I think I'm pretty sure that's when Captain America came out. Well, yeah, as we record this here, it's still, it's like April 1st tonight as we're recording and this Friday is April 3rd and that's when we get Furious 7. And I would argue that that one is trying to be a popcorn blockbuster. Oh, no doubt. No, no doubt. They're pushing, they're, they're starting it earlier and earlier I won't say every year. I'm pretty sure last year it started in April, yeah. but they're, they're trying to get, that's their money. That's when the, that's when the studios get their money mm-hmm. is, is in the summer. And if they could make, if they could make that season last nine months, they would do it. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Well, with this movie here with Pumpkinhead, So in the United States, it hit VHS in May of 1989, where it started to become an undisputed cult classic that's what I would call it. This movie did start picking up some steam in the VHS format. And then supposedly it had another VHS release in 1995. I don't remember that at all. But it was also released twice on DVD, once in the year 2000. And then again for its 20th anniversary edition in 2008. So guys, it appears that this movie had two theatrical releases and two VHS releases, and two DVD releases. That's pretty cool. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so. I thought, and recently, the, um, if I'm not mistaken, didn't uh, Scream Factory put out a Blu-ray? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I believe. Of it. Yes. Even I even heard that they were doing the second one as well. Um, they did. Okay, cool. Good. See, I'm not much of a Blu-ray guy yet. I know that's 
heresy or something, but you're missing out because the Blu-ray for, for Texas chainsaw that, um, I'm assuming the one dark sky put out, but I'm guessing the most recent 40th anniversary also Mm -hmm. is phenomenal. It's absolutely phenomenal. Special features on it are tremendous. I'm going to come to your house and watch it. And then, okay. Okay. Sounds good. All right. All right. Well, anyway, here's the premise to Pumpkinhead. When some careless and reckless teenagers accidentally kill a country shopkeeper's little boy in a dirt biking accident, the bereaved store owner, played by Lance Henriksen, is consumed with grief and bitterness, and he becomes utterly obsessed with exacting revenge for the senseless death of his son. So you got this grieving father, Ed Harley. And he visits a supposed witch of sorts in hopes that she can possibly resurrect the boy or bring him back. But she is unable to revive the child. So the father instead wants revenge. And he persuades this witch to help him conjure and resurrect Pumpkinhead, which is a vengeance demon whose corpse is reanimated in order to exact revenge on these teenage killers of his son. And the monster's job is to avenge the one who was wronged. Okay, so one sick puppy. Now that we've given the premise and everything, tell us what your thoughts are on Pumpkinhead. I think this is actually a pretty good movie. You know, we saw in 1986, we saw Lance Henriksen in Aliens. And if you look at his IMDb, he did not get the kick in the career that maybe he expected. He had two or three jobs in... uh, each year up to 88 and really until he was in millennium uh chris carter's tv show that kind of spun out of the x-files or was tacked on to the end of that contract anyway he did not become really a sought after actor in hollywood so i imagine this was pretty much just a uh, coincidence of him taking a job that was offered to him and really for this to be a, a limited release and a practically straight to VHS. Uh, I think this is a really, really good movie. Mm -hmm. I think it's well-written. I think it's well-acted. The effects are a little derivative of uh, Stan Winston's work on Alien. But uh, other than that, that's, I mean, that would be my biggest fault with the the movie would be the creature design. Okay. Wow. Really? So you don't love the creature design then in this? It's good, but it's, I mean, there there are certain scenes in the movie that are practically shot for shot uh, screen caps from Alien, and it's. Uh, I mean, if you look at the design of the monster, it's so close. I mean, you could you could put them right next to each other, and it's practically the. You know, it would have been better if they had used Pumpkinhead in uh, Aliens Four when she had that hybrid baby, because it's it's. <laughs> <laughs> a better looking creature so <laughs> oh, I, like, I like that yeah there, there's something especially his angular body like the shoulders his tail and his uh, stature and the shape of his head has changed a little bit it's more bulbous yes. but uh, there are I mean I saw one in particular shot where they show the you know the jaw and the mouth and it's dripping slime and I'm just like Dude, how did he not get sued for that? Yeah. <laughs> well, just because it's Stan Winston, I guess. I guess. <laughs> That's hilarious. Dr. Shock, what do you think of Pumpkinhead? It's a great movie. I mean, I really do uh, 
I really enjoy it. Um, and a lot of it does have to do with Lance Henriksen, for me anyway. You know, that the scene where he's sort of holding his son's body, you know, you, you, it really oh. is heartbreaking, you know. And, and even, yes. even if he takes things a little bit too far later on, at, at that moment, you, you feel his pain. I mean, you, can, you, can, you, can feel, you feel what it is he's feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and it just, I think, really showed his talents as an actor. He's an interesting guy, too. If I'm not mistaken, I think he worked something along the lines of like in a merchant, the Merchant Marines for a, a large portion of his younger life. And he didn't actually learn how to read until he was almost 40. And he actually taught himself by movie scripts, by reading the movie scripts. That's how he sort of taught himself to read. Wow. I didn't know, I didn't that. know that. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's his story. So it was his acting that, that taught him English, taught him how to read, which is which is fascinating when you think about it. I guess he just didn't need it for most of his life. But the fact that he's and it's it's funny because I saw a movie he was in today that he has, uh, even though he plays a big character, he has a very small role in it. It's the right stuff. Mm. You know, he plays he plays astronaut uh, Wally Shira. Yeah, who's probably the least explored of all the astronauts in that movie. I mean, they had, they, they, he's in the background pretty much all the time. But it was interesting to see him in, in a really early role in that movie. Um, but then you see him in something like this and, and you see, you know, you notice just how talented he really is. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely agree. And what I'll say about this movie, Pumpkinhead here, is when we did our best horror movies of the 80s and 90s and we went through each year and gave our top three for 1988 this was my number one favorite horror movie followed by number two is child's play and number three is the serpent in the rainbow Mm. um other movies from that year just to mention some notables from 1988 so we can give people kind of a gauge of when this came out you had maniac cop pen you had um Cheerleader Camp, Monkey Shines, Killer Clowns from Outer Space. Oh, wow. Uncle Sam. (laughs) Uh, Let's see. Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers. (laughs) Like, like, you know, things like that was in that that year. So it was an interesting year for horror movies. But this one is um, my favorite one of that year for certain. Mm -hmm. And what I love about this, and we just... Just a couple weeks ago, we've harped on this quite a bit, so I apologize. But this has that that great motivation for me, the same one as the original Friday the 13th. You have a parent who is bereaved and just out of his mind over the death of his child, and he wants to go nuts and avenge it. And I think that, I mean, if you think about as far as horror motivation goes, this is the greatest motivation to me. This is something I think that would make become the closest to making normal people turn into monsters and go insane and do, you know, crazy, scary things. And I've said before, I'm currently working on a blog article about this, but horror is, it stems out of two places. It, it stems out of um, fear or sadness, right? And this one comes out of sadness. And then I just think it's just remarkable. So I, I love that motivation. I can totally get behind it. And honestly, you said it, Dr. Shock, when his little boy is killed because that kid is so cute. When that kid dies in the beginning, you're like, it, it kind of, 
yanks at your heartstrings like a drama would. Uh-huh. So they they really establish it, and and a lot of it has to do with with the way that that Henriksen is playing that scene. Yeah, heck yeah, and I'm a dad. You know, you know it's like. And I love his character, actually. Ed Harley is actually my alter ego name on Facebook. I don't have a personal Facebook page for myself. So if you want to find me on Facebook, it's Ed Harley, because I love that guy so much. I think it's super cool. All right. So obviously, this has a theme of revenge, and I think that that's important to talk about here. This film, you know, during the course of this movie, his bitterness literally turns him into a monster. Now, do you guys think that in this fairy tale, as they call it, do you think that they were, that's what they were going for just to say, hey, if you let revenge eat you alive, it will turn you into an actual monster? I, I could see that. Yeah, I, I could see that as, uh, as one of the underlying themes of the movie. What do you say, one sick puppy? Because it's the first one and because I think it's so well written, I would say that's possible. Okay. Nice. Well, and, and there's something to to that whole evil begets evil, you know, evil begets evil, um, you know, because these kids, they were they were careless. I mean, they didn't mean to kill him, but they were being freaking idiots. Right. And so it's like, right. it's like, yeah, they, maybe they're they need to pay for that. So I got a true life story here. If you guys don't mind, this might be out of place. But in 1997, I spent some time in tucson arizona and i was a missionary for my church of all things and i met this woman who was like a real life pumpkin head no kidding she was this older lady who was so overcome with bitterness and rage that she shook and her muscles and tendons in her neck were permanently pulled tight and her face was drawn in this time i mean it was it was actually scary. There, she was a little bit unsettling, and I'm not kidding. It yeah, was, what was that uh, cartoon that David Lynch did in the L.A. Times or whatever? He had a angry dog or something where the dog was just completely pissed all the time. It was the same four panels, and just like every <laughs> single day, his, he was in this grimace and just super pissed. So what that made me think of. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, David Lynch did a, a cartoon for a L.A. newspaper for... I don't know, nine months or a year or something. And uh, it was the same four panels. He would uh, just call in his captions and they'd put it in. So wow. check that out. Oh. I can't remember the exact name of it. The Angry Dog or the Very Angry Dog or something like that. That sounds really interesting, actually. It does. It sounds just what like was, a lady. Yeah, what was she, what was she bitter about, Jack? Yeah, Well, uh, yeah, I was, I'm glad you asked. Yeah, she was a grandmother. And, and very sad. This is tremendously sad, but... Um, so her daughter had married this guy, and and he might have been the stepfather to her children, but he molested them, basically, and she was just ferociously angry and bitter about this, obviously. But, you know, and, and he did get his comeuppance, legally speaking. I mean, he was prosecuted and so forth. But unfortunately, she was never able to let go of that, and that's all she could think about. And it was horrifying, and... Honestly, when I see this movie, it reminds me so much of her because she was turning into Pumpkinhead in a very real way. So I think there is some truth in this that, you know, if you if you do let yourself go into like bitterness and become a vengeance demon, that, you know, a transformation will happen. 
So she'd been better off just to kill the guy. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, probably. I mean, I don't know. I mean, on, on horror movie podcasts, we do not advocate the killing of people, but <laughs> but Although, we so do. I, on, I mean, we do on Dad's house. Come right. on over, we'll talk about that. <laughs> I told you guys, warm and fuzzy. It would have been interesting that uh, well, not interesting. I guess it would have been maybe frightening if she had actually gotten her hands on him at that point. Oh man, yeah, yeah, it really would have. So let's talk about the poem that inspired this movie, supposedly. This poem by Ed Justin. Now, do you know very much about this one sick puppy? Probably know no, more than I, I do. I, actually, I was after I had seen everything, I had meant to go back and look and see what I could find out about him, but I couldn't. Uh, I didn't do that. I looked on his IMDb, and this is the only credit he had. Okay. So it's not like he's a Hollywood writer and penned this poem but uh you know it's it seems as though uh it existed before the movie did right so our understanding is i mean it sounds like we're on the same page there's this guy named ed justin he wrote this poem called Pumpkinhead, which ended up being kind of the inspiration for this dark fairy tale and by the way side note this movie Pumpkinhead and the witch it wasn't going to be quite as dark as it is, but Stan Winston, according to IMDb trivia, <laughs> he was insistent that they go that far with it. So, anyway, in case people want to hear the little poem, here it is as I find it from Wikipedia. It reads Keep away from Pumpkinhead unless you're tired of living. His enemies are mostly dead. He's mean and unforgiving. Laugh at him and you're undone. But in some dreadful fashion, vengeance he considers fun. And plans it with a passion. Time will not erase or blot a plot that he has brewing. It's when you think that he's forgot, he'll conjure your undoing. Bolted doors and windows barred, guard dogs prowling in the yard. Won't protect you in your bed. Nothing will from Pumpkinhead. Freaky, right, guys? Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think it's pretty obvious that it, it did influence uh, the movie. Yeah, everybody should read that to their children tonight before they go to bed, <laughs> along with the Babadook. That's what I was going to say. The Babadook and that would make a good one-two punch. I'll <laughs> send the kids off to uh, to Dreamland with happy thoughts, and then and then tell them what Ring Around the Rose he is really about. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, the producers of the film did not um, clarify this poem's origin very much, and. You know, I haven't been able to find any other information on writer Ed Justin, but if the listeners out there know any more about this, please let us know in the comments for episode 50. Yeah, surely it's in the commentary track. Yeah, I would think. I just didn't get a chance to listen to that this time around. So, yeah, we should look into that, I guess. So, um, what else do you want to talk about One Sick Puppy with this movie? Well, we haven't even told them what happened in the movie. Go for it. Pretty much what happens is, as the movie opens, you've got this guy and his son. You don't really have an explanation for where the mother is, but she's not in the picture. So as a result uh, of living out in the country and owning their own business, uh, a little general store, they are very, very close. And uh, so the dad has a customer come by and uh, he's forgotten part of his order at the house. So he runs up to the house and leaves this, you know, five or six year old boy at the store with his dog. 
and tells him, you know, I'll be right back. Stay here. Don't go outside. Everything will be fine. So, of course, at the uh, time that these customers are coming up, the dog runs out and these, uh, you know, thoughtless teenagers get out the dirt bikes and uh, one of them ends up coming over the hill and landing on the kid. So uh, they, the one responsible takes off and the others are kind of trying to retrieve him to the scene and take care of the boy ends up there's only one guy there with the body and the dad comes up and sees what's going on and he's you know racked with grief and just tells the the guy that hung around to take off and it's it's not it, it's not quite a matter of justice with this uh summoning of pumpkin head i think he takes uh the boy's body and uh goes to this guy and you know tries to find out where the this old woman is who's supposed to have power well he won't tell him but his son does so he uh takes him far enough that he can find it and so he's constantly carrying the body of his son around and brings it to this old woman and she says i can't bring him back you know that's that's beyond my power but you know uh he says i've heard stories about this creature and i want these guys to pay so she has him go dig up this body and bring it back to her. It's the body of this, as Jay likes to call it, beastly freak, a yes. demon called uh, Pumpkinhead. And the mythology there behind him is is really cool as far as, you know, it's not just she's going to say a spell and he's going to show up and start doing all this. You know, there, there's a commitment behind his summoning of the person that wants him. You know, it's, it's not a snap decision. You know, it, it's... A, he has to go dig him up and bring him back. And there's a little uh, blood ritual and whatnot, but he brings this creature back. Uh, and the kids are trying to get the guy that, that actually uh, killed him to turn himself in. But because he's had a DUI and, and had a wreck involving a person before he is, uh, just constantly freaking out thinking he's going to go to jail he's holding them at gunpoint all this kind of crazy stuff but there's a goodness in some of these kids and it's to a degree it's not their fault so i don't think it's quite a matter of uh ed harley realizing that i think it's just a, a matter of him realizing that what he has done summoning this creature is wrong as these kids are beginning to die and he decides he's going to uh, stop this. He's going to kill the creature, but he doesn't realize that as the creature carries on, they're actually, he's bonded with the creature. So mm -hmm. that's made clear as the movie goes on. And it's, if it was just going after the one kid that caused the wreck, you know, that would be justice. But this is just, blind vengeance just just uh emotional lashing out pretty much and it's you know it's there's definitely some collateral damage in this that there doesn't need to be i think mm -hmm. well said that was a really good mm -hmm. description i like that yeah absolutely dr shock what do you have to say no i, I can't add to it i mean that that's that's it in a nutshell you know you you, you feel bad for him at first and then when you start to realize that some of these kids who are dying, a, a had no part in it, and B, you know, did what they could. 
um, to, to, to help, uh, it, it really does, you, you know, you start, you start to, you start to sort of drift away from, from Lance Henry's character to a degree until he starts to say, Hey, this is wrong. I, I should have never done this. This was a mistake. Um, and then he starts to, to take matters into his own hand, you know, as, as once uh, into his own hands, as once a puppy said. So I think it's interesting in that way because, you know, it, it shows vengeance in a different light. This is not just, this is not vengeance for a wrong that, that is done. This is, as you were saying, just vengeance for vengeance sake, mm-hmm. that these kids happen to be part of a group who were doing this thing. And yes, one is responsible, but because they were all there, because they were all, you know, some in the wrong place at the wrong time, they're, they're going to, to die as well. It's an interesting way of looking at revenge in, in that regard. Yeah. And I like how through this, this turn of events there where he starts trying to, I guess he, he's kind of regretting this and he starts trying to change things that that are happening. I really appreciate how that reflects how revenge probably works in real life, where once you start executing your revenge, it's like even once you get revenge on someone, a lot of times, I mean, people say this, it doesn't feel better. You don't feel better. It just makes your life worse and there's regret with it. And I think it's really cool. I mean, people refer to this movie as a a fairy tale of sorts, like a dark fairy tale. And I think there is something that's very... uh, Parabolic is that the the form for parable that I'm looking for? Uh, there, uh, let's say, so. Uh, yeah. So I, I mean, there is something that makes this a lot like a parable, and it it has that I guess that moral to it, which is pretty cool. But um, well, there there there's a couple of different ways that you can go, and if you like, take uh, Kill Bill for instance. You know, it's like an old western or whatever. There's like a group of people that you've got to take out and you start, you know, and you, you've got the fuel and the fire and, you know, you're dropping one after another and you get like halfway through the thing and, and you know, you're either you got to finish it because you started it or you're just still consumed like you were talking about, consumed with this hatred and, and you know, you're carrying the fire all the way to the end. But they made the interesting choice to back off mm-hmm. which you don't often get you know it like especially i don't know it maybe it's just because they're in the country or whatever and they're you know some of these guys are kind of hicks but you don't see clint eastwood get halfway through the movie and be like yeah i don't think i need to kill all these people you know the credits <laughs> roll you know he he's persistent and he's not crazy about it but he's he maintains the course but to see somebody actually back off when it doesn't technically cost them anything at this point because he hasn't the bond is developing between him and Pumpkinhead and he is realizing you know that this is affecting him but it's he's got nothing left it's not really up to this point it hasn't really hurt him it hasn't uh you know there's there's no there's a price to be paid but it's it's not being ex- exacted yet and so he kind of just turns around and and backs off of this uh, this revenge mission just out of uh, moral fortitude. Mm-hmm. So it's that's a really unusual choice for a movie, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, and that's very impressive. Uh, side note here, just sorry, a little insert. 
I looked it up on Merriam-Webster's and parabolic is the adjective form of parable. So I'm happy to report that to anybody who wondered. But but one sick puppy, to, get, to go forward with what you were saying, <laughs> this is actually really cool because as, as we know, this more or less costs him his soul, right? Because there is a terrible price to be paid. And no, it, it would have, but I don't think it does. You don't think it does? No. Oh, this is interesting. Okay, tell it costs me. him his life, but it doesn't cost him his soul. Oh, I don't know. That's not how I read it. But tell me, tell me why you think this. I'm really intrigued now. All right. Well, when Pumpkinhead starts killing these kids, there is a moment of disorientation, dizziness, kind of washing over him, even though they're not in the same uh, place. He's feeling an effect of this killing. He's he's feeling some sort of uh, change. Uh, we find out it it probably is a change, and the more uh, killing that goes on, uh, the the more it affects him. And we see him actually physically start to change. His eyes, some of the best contacts in Hollywood history. His his eyes are turning colors and yeah. serious bloodshot and. You know, Lance Henriksen is is not a pretty guy. He's he's looks kind of old and weathered anyway. But he's he really starts to to put on this face that's, as far as I know, completely. There's no makeup involved. He's just develops this grimace and and mad look in his eyes, and we interpret that as he's he's becoming one with the creature. They're mm-hmm. they're. Uh, you know, they start off at opposite ends, and then they they come to meet in the middle, kind of. And um, I think the fact that Pumpkinhead did not actually kill him, I think that would have damned him, as uh, the witch said. But as he had the presence of mind to stop this, and he made the sacrifice to bring an end to it and save those last three kids, I don't think he paid the absolute ultimate price of damnation i think he uh you know sacrificed his life to save them and therefore uh you know got a little change back from the transaction so to speak wow okay see my understanding of the way this film ends i mean when it ends and tell me if you disagree with this but i really think that ed harley is commissioned or more or less forced now by the contract, this blood, dark, evil contract of hell or wherever it comes from, to to assume the role of Pumpkinhead. He will become the next Pumpkinhead, and he, as the film ends, he is the next Pumpkinhead. I mean, he has transformed and become Pumpkinhead, and when it's conjured again, it's going to be Ed Harley carrying out these acts, and then so forth, it continues on. Then the next person who calls upon him he will take the role of Pumpkinhead. That, that's how I understood it. I think in, in this case, I think it's just the body is what I'm saying. Because we see at the end, you know, the witch takes the, the, a disheveled, you know, desiccated corpse in a fetal position, you know, all bound up. Yeah. As it was when Ed Harley took the body out of the graveyard for her to uh, enact the curse. Mm-hmm. Puts him back in the ground, and he's wearing this necklace that his kid made for him at the and gave to him at the beginning of the movie. So it's obviously him. But my interpretation, which is really founded on nothing except my fantasy, I guess, is that sure. the, his soul is not bound to this evil. It's 
his uh, his body. I mean, there has to be a a continuation of this. But I think uh, you know it could have been anybody or any anyone I should say that took pl- part in this would have had their body used to continue the tradition, and either a their soul would have been bound to that vessel or b they would have just gone straight to hell so i don't think either one of those things happened to him because you know he nobody had had stopped this before it had run its full course and i think because he made a different choice you know he was partially rewarded well he okay so i like what you said and i respect it but I have one thing. I have one rebuttal to that. If Pumpkinhead is a vengeance demon and he is conjured, okay, there's the body that's reanimated, but the demon itself inhabits the body. Okay, so w- what is this demon? Well, and, and by definition, what is a demon? Some being that lives in hell, right? So I think that by becoming Pumpkinhead, we are to understand, at least the way I read it in my view, we are to understand that Ed Harley himself has been subjected to being a demon to hell, basically. And that when he is conjured again as the new pumpkin head incarnation, that his demonic soul will re-inhabit his pumpkin head body. Well, it's that necklace at the end that they show when she's burying that body is almost a plot hole. Because he never actually completes the transition to being Pumpkinhead. So it's, that, that we see, but we I think the necklace is there to demonstrate to us so we're sure in our minds, uh-oh, that's him. He has become Pumpkinhead. Yeah, that, it's a matter of interpretation. Sure, sure, absolutely, yes. But um, yeah, I, I tend to read it more darkly where he is subjected to the, you know, becoming a demon for eternity. And the reason that I think that's so upsetting is because I happen to be a believer in the afterlife personally. And, you know, to, to someone like me, when I watch this movie, having that reading of it, it's like, if he wouldn't have done this, then when he died one day and went to heaven, he could be reunited with his son. But now because of this dark deed, this dark transaction, he'll never be with his son. And I think that makes this even more scary and more tragic to me. Dr. Shock, you want to weigh in on the the ending? I didn't get a chance to rewatch the movie again. It's been two and a half years since I've seen it. At the time, I was under the impression that, you know, he died and that was pretty much the end of it. But again, I'd have to go back and and check it out again because maybe I might have missed something. You know, I mean, your, your interpretation could very well be there. And I just didn't pick that up. I've actually only seen this movie twice now. Once very close to the time it came out, and then again for the blog a couple years ago. Hmm. So I'm not as familiar with it as I would be other series, you know, other movies and other series. So I can't say from memory whether what you're saying is right or wrong, but I would def- I'd like to go back and check it out and just see, you know, just uh, just see if your interpretation is, is there. Because my initial interpretation, I think, was more along the line of, of one sick puppies that okay it was just sort of over uh for him hmm. yeah cool well that's awesome i'd love to hear from the listeners as well i mean make sure you weigh in on this and let us know not to choose sides but just to give us some additional insights but hey 
if you want to choose sides and say one sick puppy is right, that's fine. That's fine. I won't be offended, but I'm just saying I want to if hear. If you want to be views. right, then say that I'm right because I'm right. <laughs> but everybody likes my darker interpretation. I think I'm sensing it from them. But uh, so real quick, before we go into ratings here on this, a uh, couple little trivia tidbits from the IMDb page. Uh, Gypsy the dog is Barney from Gremlins. And that dog's real name is Mushroom for some reason. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, that's kind of neat. That dog was in another movie, too. I know that that dog, uh, I guess he was in several. But there was another one that that either I had seen recently or didn't we discuss? Did we discuss one? I can't remember. It's all running together for me now. But I could have sworn that I'd heard that that, that dog was in another movie as well. Mm-hmm. That's so and nice. obviously he was. I mean, if you look at Gremlins was, what, 84? And this movie was was the late 80s. So obviously he could have been in any number of movies. Uh, or the dog could have been in Or he or she could have been in any number of movies uh, in that time frame. But. Thank you That's, for that being. That is interesting. Thank you for being politically correct with the gender. Well, I don't that, know. I didn't. I dog. didn't actually. I didn't actually check between its legs, so I have no idea. <laughs> that's funny. Well, its name is Mushroom, and uh, yes, that's androgynous for sure. Yeah, yeah. That's that's neither male nor female. So, <laughs> so uh, Lance Henriksen. I also read this that the Silver Dollars in this movie. He actually went around on his own free time and gathered all these silver dollars from various pawn shops. And, um, and he said that most of them fell down through the floorboards of that shack where the witch lived. So he said, they're probably still there. (laughs) That's kind of cool. I read that and I didn't go back and look, but I believe that when he walks into the witch's shack there, as he's pouring that stuff out into his hand, I think he kind of juggles it. I think he almost drops it there. So, uh, keep an eye out for that. It's it's uh, it's not the smoothest prop handling, so yeah. I don't know if that actually happened in that scene or if uh, if it was prior to that. But I I do kind of remember that. But little tidbits like that to me, one sick puppy that gives it a little bit more authenticity. Like this is this is actually a real guy who fumbles. Yeah, you know what? I'm glad you said that because the one of the my favorite things in this whole movie is. Like I said, he was carrying around the, the body of his son, and he's got it wrapped in a blanket throughout the, the first part of this movie. And when he goes to the graveyard to dig up Pumpkinhead, uh, or no, I'm sorry, after he has uh, summoned Pumpkinhead and he's going to bury his son uh, next to the mother, uh, as he's digging the hole, he he stoops down really quickly and just plucks like three pieces of dirt off his off the blanket. And it's just one of those actor choice kind of things. Yeah. But that right there, that I love that. It just he was so into this part. And that's just one of those <laughs> little touches that you wouldn't see in a you know, just a, if they hadn't hired Lance Henriksen, that wouldn't have happened. Yeah. I love right. thank you. That is absolutely right. And yeah, just a little more to illustrate how seriously he takes his parts and what a just top notch actor he is. He had that set of dentures made himself to give him a more rural look, you know, like a small town general store guy. Mm-hmm. He, and he also gathered up his own props like for his wardrobe, including that World War II pump action shotgun, according to the trivia, his hat that he wears, and as we said, the silver dollars. So, yeah, I've heard him in interviews 
most notably, he was on um, our buddy's podcast over there, the um, Forgotten Flicks. They did a great interview right. with him. Yep. And that was yep, tremendous. Absolutely. Shout out to Joel and Jason and our main man in Sweden there, Peter Nielsen. Shout out to those guys. We ought to try to find that interview and link it in the show notes because yeah, Lance Henriksen, yeah, is, like he's a super cool guy. And like he spent all kind of time talking to those guys. He was very and casual. It's, it's, it's interesting because there's another podcast that he had done an interview for, Horror, et cetera, where I believe he originally said, well, I can only talk for about you know, for, for five, 10 minutes, whatever it was. But then he ended up, they were, they were at a show or something. He ended up sitting on the floor with them and they had like an hour, hour and a half conversation with them. Yeah. Well, I think everybody says that to start with, just to make sure you're not a douchebag. Right. Probably, that way, yeah. that way they can get yeah. out of it. And, you know, obviously they weren't, but uh, yeah. I'd really like to hear that. Yeah, we'll link it in the show notes. And um, Doc, if you find that horror etc. link, if you could email it to me, I'll have that link too. Sure. Then uh, see if I can see if I can track it down if it's still out there. I also read that the costume there that the the Florence Schaffler wore as the witch Agus. She said, uh, "I guess it weighed sixty five pounds." Good grief! Mm. I mean, that's yeah. that's a lot of um, witch. I remember, I remember uh, reading that. Yeah. Yeah, so that's kind of weird. And then uh, <laughs> and then the body count in this is seven. Four of those were killed by Pumpkinhead. Isn't this, this is the movie that has Blossom in it too, isn't it? Yeah. Doesn't she make a brief appearance in this movie? Yeah, Maya Bialik is one of the uh, dirty little uh, kids from this family, country, uh, country family, where he goes to find out where the witch is. Okay. And, uh, you don't you I don't even know if she has more than like one line uh, and they're sitting around taunting uh, one of the kids with the I think it's part of the poem from uh, the pumpkin hood poem but uh, she's not spotlighted at all but this was supposed to have been her first feature film she had like right. two TV parts before this yeah interesting well, let's move into our ratings here for pumpkin head from 1988 and I'll just kick it off right now. Telling you guys, this is an 8.5 out of, out of 10 for me, um, which is a really strong, high rating. I love this. I call it a must-see. It is my favorite horror film of 1988, and this is a buy. 8.5, buy it. What do you say, One Sick Puppy? Yeah, I, I don't do the, the half points like you guys. I'm going to go with an 8. Okay. And, uh, you know, the, the mythology of this creature is really well-constructed. It's not just, uh, you know, they, somebody really put some thought into this. And, you know, they've got uh, Mark Patrick Carducci uh, is credited for, and Richard Weinman, in addition to Stan Winston for the story. So who knows how they all came together. They haven't really done much beyond this that I'm aware of. But, you know, this was, this was a real script. This was not just... You know, I'm going to spend a weekend writing something. We're going to get a hundred thousand dollars and make it over. You know, <laughs> over the course of three or four days. Yes, like like so much of that stuff was. And you know, like I say, the I really don't think you can deny that the creature effects are derivative of uh, the xenomorphs from Aliens. But it's not super troublesome. It's it's just something that I'm aware of as I'm watching the movie. Mm -hmm. I wish they had. Uh, I wish they had gone a little different route. But uh, as far as the writing and the acting and, uh, you know, there's lots of dirt. There's the, 
everything is is really well covered in dirt i think so uh i'd i'd go with an eight i'd say it's it's not quite perfect but uh it's not really the fault of anybody on screen. So do you tell people to buy it or just rent it? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to pick this one up. And, and when we hear Doc's rating, I'll uh, tell you how you can go about purchasing this. But I plan to add it to my collection for sure. Nice. Okay, thank you. Dr. Shock, what do you say? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go with an eight also. And uh, it's a buy. Yeah, this is this is one I think you you have to have. In the collection, I have it as part of a four pack. Mm. I'm pretty sure that it's part of a four pack. Nice. I think no, I'm about sorry. The yes, one. Um, the second one. It's the second one that's with I think Leprechaun and Wishmaster, and yeah, it's the yeah. second one. Never mind, it's the second one. But um, yeah, no, this is a buy, and it's it's definitely one I think you 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 want to have in the collection, and I think it's one that you would revisit, um, you know, from time to time. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. All right, one sick puppy. What do you got for them as far as like where they can find it and so forth? All right, as um, on Amazon, you can rent this digitally for three dollars, or you can purchase the movie for thirteen. I I can't understand why people would buy digital movies. No, I don't either. I'm with you on that. I have no idea. I I just I would never do that, but I I feel like I should tell people anyway. The DVD is ten dollars, and the Blu-ray is about twenty. Uh, the Blu-ray is Scream Factory. Uh, it's got an audio commentary, and it's uh, co-screenwriter and uh, some of the effects guys. Um, and that is also on the DVD. That, as I understand, it was not a new commentary that Scream Factory recorded, which I I feel kind of cheated, but. The uh, I think the featurettes kind of changed. There's a tribute to Stan Winston, and uh, there's a couple of interviews with the producer and a couple of uh, lesser-known actors. Uh, Lance Henriksen is uh, interviewed for the tribute to Stan Winston, but he's not really involved in any of the other special features. But uh, I, you know, you got to buy it one way or the other. And uh, yeah, that's right. I, I'm just going to go with the yeah. Blu-ray. It's a it's a Scream Factory, you know. So it's 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 not a fantastic DVD. It it ought to be better than it is. But you know, what are you going to do? Right. Well, I totally back you on that. So that's our review of Pumpkinhead, and now we'll move into our feature review of Pumpkinhead Two: Blood Wings from 1993. Bolted doors and windows barred. Guard dogs prowling in the yard. Won't protect you in your bed. Nothing will. From Pumpkinhead. It's him, Danny. He's here! Directed by Jeff Burr and written by Constantine and Ivan Chikornia, after a group of teenagers indirectly cause an old witch to be burned, they accidentally revive Pumpkinhead. This time, Pumpkinhead is inhabited by the soul of a deformed orphan killed 30 years before. He goes on a bloody rampage after his tormentors and the teenagers. Meanwhile, a local sheriff tries to solve the mystery and stop the murders. And that, I want to give credit... uh, that is not a generic IMDb uh, synopsis. That was written by Parker Mortem on IMDb. So thank you for uh, putting mm. that on there for us to use. That's good. Yeah, uh, this movie goes in a completely 
different direction. They changed the mythology. Yes. The writing is horrible, horrible. The acting is almost as bad as the writing. And as good as Pumpkinhead is, this is really just as bad and it's wretched, really. <laughs> the movie's got Richard Roger Clinton in it. I mean, that's which how is, bad it is. Which is Bill Clinton, President Bill Clinton's brother. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's, oh, that's so bad. That's hilarious. Who, who does he play? Is he the Pumpkinhead creature? Or? He's the mayor. He plays Mayor Bubba. Mayor Mayor Bubba. Yeah, he's yes, the mayor. And he also uh, is featured on the soundtrack, which thankfully you cannot buy. But uh, <laughs> he has at that least was, one song on the soundtrack. Was Clinton in office when this movie came out? What year did this come out? Yeah, it was 93. Was okay, so he would have... He would have been new in office, yeah, yeah, probably just inaugurated that year, yeah. And, and in fact, uh, what I heard was from um, the director Jeff Burr. He said that he got to meet President Clinton, and he said the president said to him, "Aren't you the guy in California that my brother is working with on that movie?" And he said, "Yes, I am, Mr. President." And he said, "Well, good." He's like, "When that movie comes out, I will watch it in the Oval Office." So supposedly. If he kept his word, he, he watched Pumpkinhead 2, Blood Wings. <laughs> that would be pretty interesting to see, Bill Clinton sitting there watching Pumpkinhead 2. Well, he that, that uh, I imagine he was multitasking. Yeah. So. And, I would yeah, think so. Maybe he and Monica saw it. Or maybe would, she didn't would, see yeah. much of it. I don't know. Right. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Maybe uh, they were busy uh, with uh, cigars or something <laughs> while the movie was playing in the background. But no, since you brought up his brother... Uh, he see Roger Clinton is was not an actor, but he said he had been in politics for many years. So he said, "Isn't that like acting?" He's also a musician, as One Sick Puppy said. And it's I funny. didn't say he was a musician. I said he well, sang on the soundtrack. Okay, there's a big difference. There. <laughs> okay, I I get you, but it's really funny because like you know with his character, the way his character is written, they've actually incorporated both of those things. Like he asks for his guitar and. Um, yes, which he is unable to tune himself. Apparently. That, that, that pretty much gives you a tip. There are several people in this movie that I think were involved with the producers. There, are, There's a handful of people, and especially the, the two guys that surround him as, as his lackeys. You could definitely tell that they're not actors. And I, there was another couple in there. I can't remember off the top of my head who they were. But when you when you see somebody like that in a in a B movie, particularly a horror movie, you know, you know, th this was part of the deal for them making the movie <laughs> Right? was, was, you know, you got to let my girlfriend play the hot blonde or whatever. But, uh, <laughs> you know, there, there's the, a few the, of those. The Ed, the Ed Wood school of filmmaking. Yeah. Yeah. It is sort of like that. Well, okay. A couple things here. No, see our, our previous debate about Pumpkinhead, the first movie, kind of deflates a little bit where I was going to go with this one sick puppy. So <laughs> thanks for doing that. But no, no <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> See, one thing that bothered me about this movie was that we had this great opportunity to have this cyclical story. Because if you remember from the previous review, I believe that... Ed Harley has become Pumpkinhead. And so in the next movie, one would assume, if they believe that, that we're going to get to see the Ed Harley Pumpkinhead in action. And I wanted but, to... 
if one believes what I believe, then the body is just a shell, and that seems to be backed up by the plot of this film. Well, yes, we would. This plot does not. This plot has. Hey, man, I'll take it however I can get it. Basically, nothing to do with the first. <laughs> just so people know, I mean, you could almost. This is one of those movies that you could skip this this actual installment and it wouldn't take away from the franchise because it's like it's it's kind of like its own one-off type of film it, it has the pumpkin head character in it and there's a little bit of a revenge plot of course but it doesn't hold nearly the same power the same weight it's in a way from the way you're you're talking about it it reminds me a little of nightmare on elm street 2 where they decided <laughs> to take freddy put him in the real world as opposed to keeping him in the dream world, mm. you know, and let him come out and run around and kill people in the real world because the, I guess the filmmakers thought the dream world was somewhat limiting. I mean, what does that tell you about them? Yeah, really. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah, it's, it's almost like, and then fans reacted just as negatively to that, to saying, to taking Freddie in the real world, where let's face it, he'll never be as effective as he would be attacking people in their dreams where he knows that he knows the layout. He knows how to he knows how to manipulate you in your dreams. You put him in the real world. He's just another killer who can be shot dead. Um, it's interesting that that it's interesting that you take a a, a popular a, a, you take something that worked in the first movie and then you say, well, let's change it for the second movie for no other reason than let's just change it. You know, mm-hmm. and and you don't understand why. If if you're making a second movie, it's because the first one was successful. Yeah. Well, why why play with that? I can explain what happened in a moment, but first I'll hear what one sick puppy had to say a moment ago. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, when when I came up with this idea to to do the crossover and you emailed me back and said, "Yeah, we'll do Pumpkinhead and uh I'll do the first two, you do the last two." I was like, "Oh, crap. He got the two good movies." <laughs> and then I was watching this today and I was like, "All oh, right, he got one good movie and the biggest piece of crap in the franchise." <laughs> so, I mean, this has got to be the low point. The the 3 and 4 cannot be worse than this movie. I'm I'm not well, gonna wood, hopefully. But well, okay. <laughs> All don't right. Spoil it for me, Jay. I won't. I won't. I won't say anything about that. But I will explain and answer Doc's question. What happened was, I'm sorry, I don't remember the producer's name at this moment. I'll try to look it up as I'm talking. But this producer, he was not particularly a horror fan, as I recall. But he wanted to make. He liked making movies that made good bank, and he knew that. The first pumpkin head, actually, when it was all said and done over the past few years on video, VHS, it did a pretty good job. So he wanted to make a pumpkin head sequel, and so he tried to secure the rights, and he did. And it was one of these things where he was assembling his production team, and they said, yeah, we can do this. We got the rights and everything, but you got to do it fast, like within, by this certain date, I think it was within three months, they had to like have it all started the production started because they filmed this and it was between 22 or 24 days is how long it took them to film it and from the time they were in talks and pre-production to film this they had three months before they were going to start rolling cameras so what happened was when they contacted the writers it's like well yeah we do have this other horror script already 
So it was one of those scenarios where there's another horror script and they're like, I think we can adapt it pretty well to the pumpkin head uh, oh. mythos is what happened. And so that's where the blood wings comes from in my estimation. Now, I don't know this for certain, but so I think that, you know, this orphan who was physically disabled somewhat or emotionally, mentally disabled somewhat, I think this accident with him or or the awful thing that happens to him in the beginning of the film, I think that may have been part of this initial horror concept in these blood wings, this like blood wings, you know how people draw seagulls like by drawing a little V open, yes, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like, well, in this movie, the reason it's called blood wings is because when when a killing happens, then presumably Pumpkinhead p- puts these <laughs> little seagull marks like wings out of blood on the wall, right? And so, well, it, let me break that down real quick. Go ahead, please do. The movie starts out in 1958, and we see this, this uh, for I don't mean it maliciously, the, the kid's a freak. He's, he's physically deformed, and he's, he's emotionally uh, stunted, and he has been basically dropped off in the middle of nowhere and adopted uh, loosely by this old woman uh, who is, I think, supposed to be uh, the witch from the first movie, it's it's not really clear. She lives in an old shack. She's got all this magic crap around her. And uh, she's, you know, pretty much throwing food out in the yard for him to eat. Well, these uh, kids, you know, back in the 50s riding around in this, in this souped-up car, they're in a, a car club called the Red Wings. And uh, so the they go out there and torture this kid for you know, the, the last time in a series of, uh, you know, bullying and whatnot. And they end up uh, beating the crap out of him, cutting him up, hanging him and, and dropping him down an, an iron shaft. <laughs> it's malicious. The, yeah, it's it's really <laughs> sick and twisted. Yeah. Um, and then uh, as we creep back into present day, uh, this old woman is killed. Uh, she's beat by this guy that ran her over with the car and she curses them with the vengeance of Pumpkinhead. There's no, uh, you know, they, they cut out all the ceremony from the first movie. She just basically says it. And as he comes back and he is uh, brought back because they dig him up due to finding some magical implements in her house and, and, they're just stupid kids supposedly having fun. The whole thing makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. But well, let's as can I is, ask you something there? Yeah, real quick. Sorry, since we're on this part, because this is not su- abundantly clear when you're watching the film. It it seems to me, okay, this orphan was not her the witch's kid, but she seemed to be taking care of him to some degree. So she had some sort of affection. She was at least feeding him. And so I wondered, I got the impression that she was debating on whether to try to revive him or bring him back in a pumpkin head type of ceremony and that she had part of the implements there, as you had stated, but it seems like she hadn't quite gotten around to it or she hadn't decided to go forward with it. And these kids came around and finished it. That was what, that was my understanding of the plot. Yeah, it's kind of sketchy. 
Basically, she has this circle laid out in her yard, a mystical circle of some sort. She has a, a smaller version of that in her cabin, uh, almost like a model. And uh, she's got a page from this book of shadows. Uh, <laughs> the book of shadows. Well, I actually looked that up because I, I wanted to see how it coordinated with Charmed. Charmed came out five years later, but a book of shadows actually didn't come about until the forties and fifties. It's uh, basically a Wiccan Bible and there would be one copy per coven. And it was uh, the tradition was started by Gerald Gardner in his particular branch of the, the Wiccan faith. And uh, it, it was not necessarily uh, for necromantic purposes, but it would have contained all the spells and, and the beliefs of, of that group. So they had a page from this uh, scrawled out on leather, and they also had a vial of what they called cursed blood in the center of this model in her house. Real well, quick, I, I misspoke too, by the way. When I, when I said the Book of Shadows, I should have said the Book of the Dead, because they have that prop, the Book of the Dead prop from Army of Darkness. That's that's inside of her house. In this movie? Yeah. According to IMDb trivia, I looked for it. I didn't see it. Did, did you not see it either? But it, supposedly it's there. Just, no, I, I didn't catch it. I was just surprised it was this movie and not the first one. Yeah. I got, I got him confused. I believe him. Yeah, I didn't sure actually you, I, see it. I looked for it too, but... Anyway, I, I didn't really want to go back and look for much at the, at <laughs> okay. the end of this movie. Sorry I interrupted but, you. Go ahead. Yeah, so they have this uh, this vial of cursed blood. And what you're talking about, about being shoehorned into this script, it's, it's really uh, disjointed as far as the, you know, the kids are, are driving down the road. They pick up this new sheriff comes to town who was played by Andrew Robinson uh, from Hellraiser. And... Uh, his daughter, uh, Amy Dolans from Witchboard 2, comes in and she is the no good kid, but she's not really. It's it's kind of weird. She's supposed to be this troublemaker, but she gets caught up with these troublemaking kids anyway. And they're driving through the night with the, the headlights off, you know, just living dangerously is what they're saying. <laughs> yeah, there's so they hit seekers. this old woman. Yeah. And then they decide to go off. They're like, well, you know. Maybe we should go by her house and see if she's okay because she disappeared off the road. So they get there and they see all this crap and they're like, oh, we're going to do this and this because it's dangerous. And then the woman shows up and is like, give me that blood back. And, and he bashes her skull in with the flashlight and makes her all delirious. So they go out and spend God God knows how long, like two hours digging up this this body in the middle of this thing that they have no way of knowing is actually buried in the circle. And then they read the, the spell, which is actually when they look at it in the cabin, it's all symbols and stuff. Well, this complete idiot knows all of a sudden how to read this and they're pouring the blood on the corpse. <laughs> and then the old woman is trying to get up in the cabin and she sets the thing on fire by pulling over a candle. None of it makes any sense whatsoever, but all of this results in Pumpkinhead coming back. And it's not the same ceremony. You know, she calls the curse down, but her blood is not necessarily involved in the summoning as it was in the first one. And it's if it sounds convoluted and it sounds like I'm not explaining it right, I actually am. This you, is what are, you nailed in it. In the movie. You but nailed it. 
Yeah, so the kids take off, and then we see all these lights and, and the coffin shatters and whatnot, and Pumpkinhead comes back. The old woman is is practically burned to death, and somehow she and Pumpkinhead have this sort of connection that Lance Henriksen had with him in <laughs> yeah. the first movie, which it, it really makes no sense. Because in the beginning, in the flashback, when Tommy is getting his butt kicked out in the woods, she is writhing on the ground like she's feeling the pain, mm-hmm. which, which makes no sense whatsoever. Well, apparently she's always been connected to this disabled child, Tommy, because Tommy, as we know, is Pumpkinhead in this movie. Right. His, his spirit comes into, you have to assume that it was his blood. And his body, it doesn't make sense. Which supports my theory from the first movie. You just said his spirit comes in to this pumpkin head. Right, Uh, but you said that when Pumpkinhead came back, it would be Lance Henriksen. It should have been, but in this stupid movie, I'm just saying it's not an empty shell. It's not an empty shell. There's a spirit inhabiting. It's empty, (laughs) or Tommy couldn't go into it, which means Lance Henriksen (laughs) was not in it. Which means I'm right. This did not look like Lance Hendrickson at all. Not it did not. No. And he was not wearing that stupid necklace either. So Nope. Nope. They messed it up big time. Right. I'll meet you at dawn with sabers, sir. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but uh yeah, so he he gets up and goes around. The old lady gets taken to the hospital and you know, they're all trying to figure out what's going on because you know how did this old woman get caught on fire and all this kind of stuff? And the the movie just really makes no sense. Uh, As the, as Tommy has possessed this shell of pumpkin head, there is a dual agenda on one hand. He is going around and trying to find these kids from the red wing motor club Mm -hmm. that killed him. And he is also trying to kill these kids that, uh, caused harm to the old woman and were cursed by her. Yes. Now, as he kills, this is a really long way to get around to what you asked. Uh, as he kills these men that were that are now grown in their middle ages from this motor club that participated in Tommy's death, he puts the blood wings on the murder scenes as a representation of that Red Wings club. Mm-hmm. Yes. Ooh. Yeah, well said, and that was a very good description of that. And all I was saying is that I believe, I don't have any proof or evidence of this, but I believe that that whole Red Wings thing and the Blood Wings thing, I think that comes from the original horror script. That they Yeah, it makes a lot more sense for, for a serial killer to be doing that, to torture these people than to... Because in one point of uh, when he goes to kill the... There's six people that are alive from this club, right? And, of course, one of them is is a judge, and he is the father of the guy who hit the old woman and beat her down with a flashlight. As he goes to kill him, you, you he hears something as he's trying to summon his minions to come protect him, and he walks into this room in his house, and there are these little red wings. There's got to be 100, 150 of them painted all over the walls. <laughs> now, keep in mind that Pumpkinhead has got claws coming out the end of his fingers, and they're like an inch and a half long. So it'd be really hard for him to paint all these with a finger anyway. True. He's got no blood on his fingers. But 
in spite of the fact that he's been in the room, he then goes outside, shuts the door, waits for the guy to come in and notice all this stuff. Then he kicks the door in and comes in to kill it. So that makes no sense whatsoever. That's true, but, but that entrance is pretty cool. When he when he comes into the room, I kind of like that. I'd like to have a poster of that pumpkin head entrance in the door because he's very tall, and I love how he has to bend over to go through the door that kind of creeps me out a little bit yeah okay <laughs> so but, but no i'm with you and now another problem i have is the casting here like i actually liked some of these actors but i just want people to know because it it'll be bugging you the whole time you'll be thinking about it so this witch person miss oc in this i was certain upon watching this i'm like why do they have a man playing that role well it's not it's actually a woman she's a french woman she was born in 1925 and uh she just has a very masculine husky uh voice and (laughs) demeanor and so forth but just so you know they actually did cast a female to play the witch but it is not the awesome witch from the first movie who says Ed Harley. <laughs> like, it's yeah, not, it's definitely not her. Yeah, I, That's not what I thought you were talking about. No, what, what were I you going to say? I thought you were talking about Punky Brewster. Oh, yeah. Who yeah. is up in this movie at the age of 17. And I was 19 when I saw this. I don't think I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a pervert, but don't think I'm in this particular case perverted. She was freaking hot in this movie. <laughs> and I was, you know, when we were both teenagers, she's only two years uh, younger than me. So, uh, you know, we were about the same age, and I hadn't seen her in forever. Yeah, um, but she she was looking good in this movie. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, and her and, and her Amy voice. Dolan's is yeah. Amy Dolan's was the other chick in this movie. Pretty much the only reason to watch this as a as a young person was the girls. And Amy Dolan's was uh, she's she's been in several different things. She actually played Sloane Peterson in the uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off TV show, mm-hmm. but she was in Witchboard too, and she's been in a bunch of TV movies and whatever, but she was so cute. Yeah, very. And, and we'll say that uh, Linnea Quigley is in this doing her usual thing that she does in horror yes. movies. She's, she's so bouncy. <laughs> and you also have Kane Hodder in this in a very small yes. role. So he's in this movie as well, but I will say, Honestly, the best performance was the lead, which is Andrew Robinson as the new sheriff. I like him. I think he he does a fine job in this movie, and he's kind of what they anchor to, to be honest. With Andrew Robinson, I can't. I mean, obviously, I think of Hellraiser when I see him, but also that great part he played in the first Dirty Harry movie of, of, uh, was it Scorpio? I guess their version of the, the Zodiac Killer. I'll tell you about that. Um, Supposedly, and this is all hearsay, but actors quote this sometimes, um, John Malkovich called Andrew Robinson the best screen villain we've ever seen because of that role. So just saying. So anyway, he's in this movie. If you don't know who we're talking about, Andrew Robinson, you'll recognize him when you see him. I'm sure you will know him. But... I got to make a confession here, one sick puppy, and you'll probably like just <laughs> assassinate me on this. I don't know why. I can't explain it. They messed up the concept. They did not follow through with the things that I like and all that stuff. But don't this this movie, 
I, I don't know. I have fun when I watch this. It's kind of a guilty pleasure. Pumpkinhead does not look as good. He's not like, he He looks more like a suit in this. He looks kind of dry and like rubbery. He, he He's not goopy. He doesn't have like the drool and, and the stuff like that. And this film was a rush job, as I said, and you can kind of see that. And the director, Jeff Burr, he admits this. Um, this particular suit, they threw it together pretty fast, and the actor was not able to run while wearing it, especially because of the feet. And so in a lot of the movie, he's actually wearing tennis shoes. And although I did not see it, the director admits that you can see tennis shoes in this movie on Pumpkinhead. <laughs> yeah, I saw that on IMDb, and I didn't notice it. Mm-mm. So No, it must be really... You have to really look for that. But yeah, that was Mark McCracken playing Pumpkinhead in this. So, I, I don't know. There's some there's some kind of guilty pleasure aspect to it. I think it's just because I love the Pumpkinhead monster so much. But I think the real weakness in this is the actual battle scenes where Pumpkinhead is engaging and trying to attack. Because his suit is so cumbersome you can tell that he's really having trouble getting to them and grabbing them and stuff. But there is a head rip scene that is a literal head rip scene that's pretty cool. Do you give it that? Yeah, it was okay. I mean, you get I that. I don't know. They had, some, they had some cool kills in the first movie, which I'm sorry we didn't talk about. But uh, there was like literally one... I don't know. You could kind of count the the first guy who who was had his arms and legs ripped off, but uh, they didn't even show that properly on screen. Right. This guy, uh, just about the time he was about to kill him, I'm thinking to myself, there are just no effects in this movie. And then they actually show his head being ripped off. But when he pulls it off, it's like all these. It's like if you had a bunch of red earthworms hanging off the bottom of his skull. It's like fringe or something i don't know it was it was not realistic in any sort of way and then they throw his head down on the ground so that's the only gore you really see on the screen and it's just i don't know i didn't i didn't buy in it to to know that greg nicotero worked on this movie and i'm assuming this was before knb but uh i know he he was involved in some way it just it's really disappointing to see the effects on this. I, I suspected, I didn't even know that they made the suit for this movie. I suspected that they had gone and gotten the suit from the first one. No. And it was just in such disrepair after five years. It is but, not the same suit. Yeah, they yeah. actually had to, con- like, they had to conjure the pumpkin head suit pretty quickly. I mean, they had three months, basically, to do that. And that's just is super fast. And you can kind of tell. I mean, it doesn't look terrible, but it's it's pretty fake looking compared to the first film and and that's a problem yeah. for sure so anyways and by the way according to IMDb trivia it says KNB effects worked on both films 1 and 2 so i don't know if that helps but okay anyways yeah there was and in that first scene when pumpkinhead is clawing the farmer well, at least yeah. there was a scene like this where it it was cut because it would have been an NC-17. I guess that that was a lot more intense. That's, I, I don't believe that. Before. Crap. Why I do you think that's crap? I don't buy that for a minute because the effects are so horrible in this. There's nothing shown on screen except for that guy getting his head ripped off. They don't show 
him actually losing his limbs. They just show his limbs being thrown to the ground. <laughs> it's it's just well, I don't it, I don't think there's any there's no way that there's enough. I mean, back in in a straight to video, it wouldn't have been NC seventeen anyway. It would have been unrated. Hmm. It would have gone straight to video, and it wouldn't have had a rating. I guess that's true. I guess that, that's, that, that's a good point. I mean, the only yeah. reason you the only reason you get a rating is theatrical, you yeah. know, to, <clears throat> for for a theatrical release. If you're going to put it straight to straight to video, I mean, you don't necessarily need the MPA to get involved. I mean, I don't know. Maybe Josh would have more insights into that, but I I would agree. I don't think you need to get the MPAA even involved at that point. Just you know, say. The hell with you. I'm just going to, if it's going on video, I'm just going to do it unrated and that'll be that. Well, that little factoid comes from Jeff Burr's DVD audio commentary, supposedly. So he could be lying about that. Once was this puppies... straight? I mean, was this straight? Was this always intended to be straight to video? Yeah, this was a direct to video. They knew it was going to be and they just wanted to put it out there to make some money because the first one was making money on, you know, on video. So. That's what they were going for on it. But anyways, <laughs> that's Pumpkinhead 2 Blood Wings. Let's wrap up with our final thoughts and ratings. One Sick Puffy, you can kick it off here. What do you say? Man, except for, uh, you know, a couple of pretty girls, uh, there's really nothing for me in this movie. Uh, the people are, the, the kills in this movie are really bad. Uh the people are killed to music, which is strange. Like the farmer is killed to religious radio. And uh, there's another uh, guy gets killed to country music. And I mean, it, it's like playing as he's screaming and it's really weird. And there's a lot of people standing around screaming, waiting for their turn to get killed. It's like Jay was saying, it's, it's really like they just shuffled Pumpkinhead into this script and the script was poorly written to start with and to try to shoehorn him in. Uh, I don't appreciate any of the acting in this movie. Even Andrew Robinson, I thought uh, he may have just had a crap script to work with, but nobody stands out in this movie as, as bringing much to the table. And uh, basically, it's, it's just bad from start to finish. So... I'm going to give this one like a two. I don't know. It's just, it's really, really bad in my opinion. I just, you know, I, I can't even say it's so bad. It's good. It's just bad. Wow. I hope I never see it again. I'll tell you how to buy it when we get done with the ratings, but I wouldn't recommend buying it by <laughs> any means. So, you know, so that's a two and an avoid then. Yeah. I, I'm going to say avoid it. All this really does is, is, you know, sully the, greatness of the the first movie it it adds nothing it it detracts from the mythology uh and it's it just there's i have nothing positive to say about this movie okay well fair enough i mean i i actually tend to agree with the last thing you said that that i mean almost you could kind of look at this like if you liked the pumpkin head creature it's like from the first film well You've got that creature, but not done as quite as well or as convincingly in another Beastly Freaks movie. But, I mean, I wouldn't even look at it as a Pumpkinhead movie. And I think it works better as a non-Pumpkinhead movie. I know that it's un- indisputable that it is the second film in the franchise. But 
It's just not even a part of the story, as one sick puppy has said. Because here's the thing, they totally mess up the myth, like the whole background of the Pumpkinhead story, and that's what irks me a lot. I can live with him not looking as good, and even the attack scenes and so forth, but that story and that motivation, the whole re- the revenge themes... That's what makes Pumpkinhead great, and so that's why this is not great. However, this has the flavor of a late 80s schlock movie. I know it's from 1993, but it has that 80s feel to it, to me, where it's kind of like something that you would turn on HBO back in the day, around like midnight, and this would come on, and you'd sit and eat Doritos and drink Mountain Dew and that's what you'd do and it'd be a good time on a Saturday night just because it's nothing else to do you know so I don't know I had fun watching it I don't know why because everything you said is true it's because Doritos and Mountain Dew have rotted your brain (laughs) maybe I mean I haven't had a lot I haven't had those in a long time but I'm just talking about late 80s era Jay of the Dead you know I mean it's it seems like a good time to me so Anyway, I think that if you like horror and you're not too picky, if you are very forgiving of the 80s style filmmaking. Are you listening to yourself? This is a bad Uh. 80s movie that was released in the 90s, basically. I mean, that's what it is. But even so, I mean, I love that monster. I I can't help myself, even though they, they dishonored him and did not do him justice. So for me, Pumpkinhead 2 Blood Wings is a 4.5 out of 10. I give it a low priority rental. But if you love the monster, I think you should at least see it once. All right, I'll go along with that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Ooh, so where can they find this this one sick puppy? Oh, man. If you go down to Texaco and look behind the toilet in the men's room, <laughs> there is one on the ground. Uh, no, but... Amazon's got the Blu-ray for $17. Again, it's a Scream Factory. Uh, It's got an audio commentary with director Jeff Burr. It's got uh, Recreating the Beast with uh, interviews with Greg Nicotero and a couple other guys that worked on it. Um, Mark McCracken was actually in the pumpkin head suit, Mm -hmm. and uh, he is in that featurette as well. Um, You've got a couple of other little featurettes in it. Nothing really to speak of. Uh, it says behind the scenes footage, but I can't even imagine what that's like. It's probably shot on a camcorder and <laughs> just them walking around and, you know, it's probably just absurd. Pictures of a craft table or whatever. But um, the the actual DVD is out of print. You can get it on eBay in a couple of different ways. If you just get the movie uh, – if you just get Pumpkinhead 2 by itself, you're going to pay about 50 bucks for it. But uh, like David said earlier, uh, you can get this uh, Pumpkinhead 2, Blood Wings, Leprechaun 1, Wishmaster, and Wishmaster 2 on a DVD together, or at least in one clamshell. And uh, they all have the special features. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's actually a much better way to, to pick up the movies. Yes, um, do that. So. That'll cost you only about five bucks off of eBay. So by all means, I, I unless you're just some kind of Scream Factory completist like the guys over at Screamcast, I wouldn't bother buying this on the Blu-ray because they're, you know, if they remastered it, it's not going to look that much better. And it's half of the movie is, you know, 
strangely colored flashing lights anyway. So it's, it's a complete <laughs> waste to even put this on Blu-ray, I think. But I will mention there was a video game adaptation called Bloodwing's Pumpkinhead's Revenge yes. was released in 1995. It was a DOS game on PCs. And it sold poorly and received little attention, according to Wikipedia. It's a first-person shooter. And uh, I actually watched a little YouTube uh, uh, walkthrough clip. Basically, uh, you're in a dungeon, and you fight this guy, and a void opens up on the ground. So you jump in, and you're collecting crystals and whatnot. And then you're, as you come back out of that, you run up to a picture <laughs> on the wall and put the crystal on the picture, and it plays a clip from the movie. So I thought that was kind of cool. And apparently there's objects to help you complete your quest and, and some objects that will kill you and whatnot. I am, I am happy to say, as much as I hate this movie, I went today and purchased this game on eBay for 25 bucks. <laughs> so it should be on its way to my house. It was such a strange piece of movie memorabilia. I, just, I couldn't resist it. It's, it's weird. It's the second CD-ROM I tried to purchase today. I was looking earlier, uh, I watched Heart Behind the Music, and I was trying to find a, a <laughs> CD-ROM that they put out, 20 Years of Rock and Roll, which I can't find anywhere. If anybody's got it, I want it. But uh, And then later in the day, I come across this Pumpkinhead video game, but I was there's more than one, but I actually found one that's got the box and the, the instruction manual and everything with it. So if I can get the thing to play, uh, it ought to be fun for about a half hour or so. Wow. <laughs> But don't was, buy the movie. That was hilarious. My favorite part of this whole review was you talking about that game just now. <laughs> That's yeah. priceless. It's uh, going to be fantastic. You let, can you can go on YouTube and and watch people play it, and it's you know, I, I there's really no reason. I'll probably never play the game, but it it was just so cool. I just want to have it on my shelf. I'd much rather have the video game than the movie. I was going to ask if you would be willing to do a favor for the listeners of horror movie podcast and for dead as hell I, I wondered if you would review the game like do a short little like five minute review describing your experience if you do that i'll include it in a future episode if you'd be willing to send me a a recording of your <laughs> mini review of that i think absolutely that, i think that'd be super cool i think that's hilarious but um no you mentioned the strangely colored flashing lights for a lot of the movie, I couldn't figure out what was going on there. And then I figured it out. That is supposed to be the monster's subjective point of view. When you see that, it's the monster. Yeah, I guess that could be. I don't know. It was kind of weird because, uh, no, I'd have to disagree. Because when the at the beginning, when, when the, he comes out of the grave, you see these lights and these flashes, and it kind of blows the coffin apart. And then, you know, he comes around. But I remember there was one part in the movie where uh, there's a shot. There's somebody standing there, and there's a doorway as the viewer is watching to the left. And you see these flashing lights coming through the doorway, and then he steps through. So it's not from his point of view. It's like the lights are back there flashing. Because I remember the guy doesn't look over at the flashing lights. Yes. And I'm like, are you kidding me? You don't see that? It's like half of the room is turning <laughs> white and you're not looking over there. And then it's it's like his coming out. You know, he the, pops out. And it's you're completely right. absurd. There are Maybe flashing that's lights. What they intended. But, but when it's but when it's tinted red, it seems to be Pumpkinhead's yeah. POV. But I, I you know, I guess it's probably inconsistent 
if we were being honest. Like, well, let, let's say that that is Pumpkinhead Vision, and let's say that that's the coolest thing about the whole movie. Yeah, and it's and it's really not. I mean, uh, oh man. Okay, so that's Pumpkinhead Two. Blood Wings, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this movie. If you've seen it or if you end up getting intrigued for some reason from this review and you watch it, please you let us know. Bastards. Yeah, let us know in the comments. All right, one sick puppy. So let's encourage people at this point. What we're going to do, I'm going to put this review, these two reviews at the very end of this episode. So when they're finished here, they can go over to the Dead as Hell Horror podcast and hear your episode where we review three and four so will you tell the listeners where they can find you yes please go over to deadashellhp.com or tangentboundnetwork.com you can find me on itunes and stitcher as well and uh download the second half of our very first perhaps the first in history crossover episode between horror movie podcast and dead as hell and we will be reviewing i did not write the names down they have funky names uh pumpkinhead three and four uh the third of which has the same director as pumpkinhead two god yeah, help us it's ashes and, to uh, ashes is the ashes one. to ashes and, and blood feud Okay, Blood Feud, I believe you. I'm not sure if they were sci-fi movies or not, but they were definitely made for TV. Yes. And uh, if they they weren't sci-fi movies, they had to have been like box action pack movies or some crap. I don't know. But uh, this is going to be horrible. And on my show, I don't have to watch my language. So I'm going to tell you exactly how bad they were. (laughs) Turn Jay's cheeks red and uh, teach him a couple of new words. All right. And we're going to have some fun. Yeah, it will be fun. And why don't you let the listeners know where they can find you on Twitter and all that other stuff, buddy? Yeah, I'm pretty much dead as hell HP everywhere. Uh, On Twitter, I'm dead as hell HP. Uh, I've got facebook.com slash dead as hell HP. And uh, check out the, the... main thing right now is the website. I want to get some comments going on the website. And uh, I just revamped it. If you've been there before and said, oh, that's the worst website ever, I actually did improve it uh, slightly. It's it's less dark and, and more user-friendly. I think it's prettier. You know, it's still WordPress, but I'm still kind of proud of it. So go check it out and uh, be my friend. Leave me some comments. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, I, I need friends. Okay. <laughs> That sounds good, buddy. Well, we appreciate you being here on Horror Movie Podcast. Thanks for coming. Anytime. Thank you very much for having me. All right. Well, I think that just about wraps up episode 50 of Horror Movie Podcast. We thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this show. I want to take the time to thank once again our special guest, One Sick Puppy. You can find him at the Dead as Hell Horror Podcast. And I just want to encourage our listeners out there to help us with a new project that we're working on. And that is the questions for the horror movie answer men. (laughs) Okay. Roger Ebert used to have a column he would call questions for the movie answer man, where people would write to him and ask him basically anything about movies that they wanted to know and he would either research them or answer and I thought maybe it would help if I were to give you guys an example of this so The Sixth Sense which is really more of a thriller this is a question that they asked Roger Ebert so the question comes from Derek Jennings in Raleigh North Carolina and he wrote after seeing The Sixth Sense my friends and I had a question Donnie Wahlberg's character Vincent 
as a birthmark, a white spot in his hair right behind his right ear, and so did Haley Joel Osment's character, Cole. Is there any relation to be made here? And Roger Ebert's answer was, Jose Rodriguez, assistant to director M. Night Shyamalan says, Quote, During research for the story, the director found that people who experience extreme trauma sometimes lost pigment in their hair. The relation between Cole and Vincent is that they both experienced extreme trauma and lost pigment in their hair. So that's one example. So if you have a burning question, if you want to write in and try to stump us, you can. Now, we don't claim to be experts or anything, but we are going to take your questions seriously. We're going to catalog them and we're going to work on answering them. And we're not doing this for ego purposes or anything. (laughs) Not because we think we're know-it-alls, but the real reason I want to kind of mine for questions out there that are like controversial topics in horror. I'm trying to find the top 10 most controversial or most important or most pressing or most passionate questions among the lovers of the horror community. So what we'll be doing is hopefully taking your questions if you email us at horrormovieanswermen at gmail.com. And if you write in to us and ask us a question, we'll be collecting those and we'll be answering them. And if there's a question that we get a lot of, like for example, here's one that you probably won't want to hear about since we talk about it ad nauseum on just about every show, but the whole question of what is horror. I'm actually working on an in-depth blog about this and... I think there are matters pertaining to the horror genre that we can get to the bottom of, and I want to do that. So please, I'm asking, please (laughs) send in questions to the Horror Movie Answer Men, and that would be Kyle Bishop, Dr. Shock, Wolfman Josh, and me, Jay of the Dead. All right, I'm going to hear the plugs from my co-host. Grateful you guys were here. Doc, will you tell people where to check you out? Well... Same place as always, um, dvdinfatuation.com, still going there. Uh, Twitter, at dvdinfatuation, just one word. Um, over on Land of the Creeps, uh, we're actually closing in on our 100th episode over there. Um, and we're taking a look, uh, the last couple, we've taken a look at the ABCs of Death 1 and 2. And, uh, yeah. That's that's about it. Hit me up, um, and um, you know, email is dvdinfatuation at gmail.com if you want to send me a message. Okay, what about you, Wolfman Josh? You can follow me on Twitter at Icarus Arts, and I suggest that you do that very thing. Um, also, uh, I'm on Movie Streamcast and occasionally Movie Podcast Weekly, and I'm producing the Sci Fi Podcast, and I was. On their latest episode, where we talked, the topic was more human than human. It was a really fun discussion about uh, robots and artificial intelligence approaching humanity. And uh, the feature review was Chappie. We talked about probably 30 other films uh, during that discussion. So it was, it was a lot of fun. Nice. Excellent. Yeah, I can't I'm, I listen, I'm still in the middle of listening to episode two. Mm-hmm. of the sci-fi podcast but the chosen yeah, one. yeah it's a great episode I, I think i finished up the discussion of um uh was it jupiter ascending yeah and yeah and, yeah and and just for so people know on that show they do do like a new release review of something like jupiter ascending and and chappy but if you don't like those movies or you're not interested in those movies the discussion themes are kind of like here on horror movie podcast mm-hmm. they dive a lot deeper than just giving a review of a crappy movie uh, 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And the Sci-Fi Podcast is actually one of my favorite podcasts ever. Of all time. I love it. So. Uh, and really there's good. only been two episodes released right. so far. I, I'm serious. <laughs> I, I'm nuts about it. I think it's just killer good, and I look forward to it. Is there a new episode coming out tomorrow, Josh, as we record this? Yeah. By the time this podcast comes out, there should be uh, episode three, which, as I said, is uh, more human than human and or a feature review of Chappie. Okay, nice. sweet. That sounds good. And I just love it if people check me out over at uh, Movie Podcast Weekly. We review a new film that's in theaters, at least one that's brand new every week of all genres. So come and join us there, and we'd love to have you. Here's a real quick plug that comes from our friend Dino. He sent me an email, and it says, Hey, Jay, something a few of us on the comment boards have been doing lately is posting our own personal top 10 horror lists on the Horror Movie Podcast top 10 list blog page. Yeah, that's right. Josh assembled this really nice page where he put all of our top 10 favorites on there and he did some tremendous artwork. I'll have it linked in the show notes. And uh, Dino continues here. He says, if you're into it, would you mind plugging that idea on the show sometime? I think it could be an interesting and ongoing conversation for many of us. But I know only a small fraction of the show's listeners ever actually visit the site, which, by the way, is at horrormoviepodcast.com. He says, maybe if they hear it on the show, they'll want to stop by and join in on the conversation. And so, Dino, that's a great idea. Thank you for suggesting it. And I would encourage all the listeners to check this out. I'll have this linked in the show notes. You can see our top 10 all-time favorite horror films for Dr. Shock, Wolfman Josh, Dr. Walking Dead, and me. And at the bottom in the comments, we have all these listener lists that are just (laughs) fantastic. It's tremendous. I really love it. So I'd encourage you guys to go check that out. I just wanted to make a quick little personal announcement that the number one horror movie of 2014 is now available at Redbox. Yes, that's right. You can rent The Babadook at Redbox. So make sure that you check that out if you have not already. It is a 10 out of 10. We love your comments, so get involved in the Horror Movie Podcast community and keep them coming. You can leave a comment in the show notes for episode 50 here, or you can email us at horrormoviepodcast at gmail.com, or just call and leave us a voicemail. We love voicemails. 801-382-8789. You can find all of our episodes, all 50 of them, at horrormoviepodcast.com, and you can also find our back archives of the weekly Horror Movie Podcast and Horror Metropolis. You can subscribe for free in iTunes and get every single show that we release. And you can follow us on Twitter at HorrorMovieCast. We're also on Facebook and Google Plus and so forth. Just look at the top right corner of our website. You'll see all those social media chicklets there. I want to take time to thank Fred Ingram for the use of his music for the Horror Movie Podcast theme song. You can find more of Fred's music at frederickingram.com, and I'll have it linked in the show notes. And I think that's it for episode 50. We thank you for listening, and join us again next Friday for Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror.